Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. What is today, Wednesday? It's Wednesday, right? It is Happy Wednesday. Wednesday! Welcome into the Fan Midday Show. It's been a long time since I sat in this chair. I'm Will Haskett. He is Jimmy Cook. That's Eddie Garrison. I almost forgot your guys' names right then and there. That's professional. It's the worst fear, by the way, to, to start any broadcast yeah. is not remembering or like your brain just going blank on names. Play-by-play tip for you. It is totally okay to write your analyst's name at the do. top of the board. Always and then, do. But it, when you're working with somebody, I never forget working with really, really prestigious, retired coaches, whatever it might be. And I finally worked up the courage as I got older in the business. Just tell them, like, listen, I'm going to write your name down here because the last thing I want to do is forget your name and have a a brain cramp moment yep. or something like that. I always do it. But I do not have your name or Eddie's name written down on a piece of paper in front of me today. So that it's was okay, pretty Steve, good. We're fine. I've already, I've already <laughs> passed that test. It is an absolutely beautiful day here in Indianapolis on a beautiful week for racing, the 107th running of the Indianapolis 500 coming up on Sunday. And we are race heavy today. Kyle Kirkwood, bottom of this hour. Ed Carpenter at 1245. Jake Query at the top of the next hour. Michael Kaltmark, director of marketing for IMS at 2 and Simon Pagino at 2.30. So there you go. That's a heavy hitter list, including some guys with some absolutely incredible history at this track, both whether be it professionally speaking in the car or around the cars throughout the course of their life. And it's important for me. I just came back from the PGA Championship. I was there for eight days. Obviously, golf is what I do predominantly. This is always an exciting week as someone who's lived all 42 years of my life in this market and has been to, I don't know, 20 of these races, I want to say, either in a working capacity or a fan capacity. This is such an important week. How many people I talk to over the course of my travels, especially this past, like, where do you live? Indianapolis. Oh, the 500's coming up. Yes, like it is woven into the fabric of who we are, and it is so important to our city, to our economy, to our culture. In a lot of ways, it sort of has driven, pardon the pun, so many of our sports memories and our identity as a sports culture here. So it's it's a very important week. And I'm so happy that today is the day that I'm in here. And we were talking about this yesterday when we were kind of prepping the show, you guys, about who we wanted to have. And all of a sudden, Eddie's like, hey, we got all of these drivers coming on and everything. <laughs> so we're going to go wall-to-wall heavy today on the 500, getting you prepared. We're going to try and have some conversations today that are maybe just outside of the general, hey, who do you think is going to win the race? Or how do you like your car? Like all of these things that you probably heard a lot of these drivers answer so we're trying to bring in some other perspectives as well to sort of have a great day chatting about the race that is upcoming and jimmy i know that this is a sore subject for you because i mentioned it earlier but there's really no other sporting news to talk about in indianapolis other than this because gosh darn it the nhl and nba playoffs are brutal i was really hoping for the heat to win last night so i could really hammer this point home there is no reason to watch these other there's i mean the Vegas game last night was kind of fun because of how it got out of hand early in that hockey game. So that was entertaining, but then it was done after a major penalty in the first five minutes. And yes, Boston rallied, but what? Will, they got one. Oh, boy. Will, they, they have one. And now that awesome. they have one, they tried to warn they Miami. They might actually win this They series. tried to warn Miami, don't let us get one. Yeah. They borrowed the 04 Red Sox moniker. Sure. Don't let us get one tonight. Yep. Better put us away here. Now it's a little bit of life. I don't know if I'd go so far as TNT's post coverage, which was quite a flip of the script for what they had after game three, and probably rightfully so, because it like Boston had laid down and given up all hope. Yeah. And then now Charles Barkley's like, well, 
They go back to Boston. They win that game. Suddenly a game seven for Miami in game six. Nobody wants to go back in the garden. I don't want to go back to the garden for game seven. So while it's on still life support, they got one. The only hope that the NBA has is that game going to seven. They need Boston in the finals. I mean, a Denver-Miami finals. And don't get me wrong, like Jimmy Butler has been awesome. Like He is worth the price of admission, but he's almost worth the price of reflecting on it as opposed to watching the actual games. Like Give me the highlights from the night before. Show me what Jimmy Butler did. Show me who was an idiot and got in his face and yelled at him and motivated him even more. Like it's It's been great YouTube fodder for me to watch how Jimmy Butler has destroyed fan bases and better teams throughout the course of the playoffs, but I don't think it's been driving me to the actual television the way Kings-Warriors was, the way Warriors-Lakers were, the way Boston-Philly was driving me to the TV to actually watch these games. And if, I mean, we are one game away from a Denver-Miami finals. Next Thursday, by the way, the NBA would have had a year off between the end of these conference finals and the start of the NBA finals no one's going to watch no one's going to watch and they should because Nikola Jokic is fantastic they yeah. should because Jimmy Butler is fan no one's going to watch Jimmy they're just not going to I will watch because I love the NBA sure, Eddie will watch because he loves the NBA if you haven't if you've been using it as YouTube watching. fodder to this point you're not going to watch it no you are not I guess I can say you you and the audience that maybe don't like the NBA or have been Poisoned by the national well, which is dissolved from the national hey, media no, down. No, hold on. Hold on. I just heard this. M- Mike Greenberg just went on a rant about how people are complaining about they don't cover any other sports. And I thought he was emphatically wrong in his take because they do have power over what people consume. And I agree. We have power over what people in this market consume. I'm just saying from a general fan attractiveness standpoint, I don't think the matchup is anywhere near what would have been the best. It's not even close to what could have been the best possible drive of getting people interested beyond just the normal nudge of, I want to watch an NBA Finals game. Sorry. Correct. LeBron's going to have more of a jump-off point than anybody in this series. Steph Curry would have had a better jump-off point from a ratings perspective than anybody in a potential Denver and Miami series. But, and this has been the biggest complaint, even though I feel like Michael Malone has been over the top at times this year about it, particularly during the postseason run, this is a potential jump-off point. Because I'm not saying that they are as electric or as emphatic as Golden State is, but before Steph was Steph in 2015... It was still a big market. They were still a very, very fun team. They had to start somewhere to be able to grow that. This is must-see TV every night. And I don't think that Jokic will ever really be that. Jamal Murray could be. Yeah, he's Jamal been Murray is, he's been is, is, is an electric guard when he's on. And so far, at least through the Western Conference Finals, he was on. Yeah. And if you get that at the largest stage, plus Jimmy Butler being a team killer, give it a chance, is I all like, I'm saying. I, I like You're it. right. The I ratings like where aren't going to show up, but... I would ask fans to give it a chance and see what it has to offer. I like we are. Because they could be a very fun Your series. Your check is in the mail from Adam Silver. Congratulations <laughs> on that one. It's just, the other part of it too is, no, none of the series right now, and we can throw the NHL into it also, like the Panthers were a cool story early, and now, I mean, we all stayed up as late as we could to watch the, once the game goes into overtime, you're kind of like, ooh, I got to stick around until I see a goal. And then once it gets to the second overtime, you're like, oh, do I really want to stick this out? And then once the third overtime starts, you're you're passed out, and you don't actually get to see it. So it's been fun from a thrilling end standpoint, but we're so far away in any of these conference finals, both basketball and hockey from a game seven, from a true sort of moment that transcends the roster. You know, like if it wasn't the Lakers, like give me the worst marketable team in the Western conference playoffs this year, not Sacramento. Um, 
They actually had some pretty good brands out there. But if this had been Denver, come on, help me out here. I mean, I mean, I would say Memphis, but Ja is Memphis, marketable to Memphis an extent, out, minus everything yeah. that's going on right now. All right, whatever. It's a bad example. Yeah. But if let's just do the finals, Miami makes it through and plays Denver in a final. A seventh game will drive so many more people, even if the first six games have been magical. And so what we're lacking right now is just this sort of push of momentum of, wow, look at how compelling and great the basketball competition has been because we've hit this massive speed bump that has been this the overmatched conference finals. I thought the beginning of the Lakers Nugget series was good, but then as soon as they're down, it's like they they can't come back. You watch that game enough, you watch that team enough, you're like, there's no way they're going to run off four straight against this team or even four out of the last five. Can the Celtics come back? Yeah, and they will have my attention. They will have my eye equity coming up early next week if they make this get to this get to a game seven but i woke up this morning checked the score i was like oh good for them they survived elimination for one extra day right like i mean that's we're all competing for time and for space and we can transition this and segue beautifully back to the indianapolis 500 like this is a series that has been has entered into a huge competitive landscape for eyeballs and there's been some really really good things at this race to return it to its past glory and any of us who have grown up going to this race through the years knows what i'm talking about in that there were some lean years where the product on the track or the product through the season was not as compelling as in previous years and this year and over the last couple of years it really kind of stems from the hundredth running all the way through the then 100 year anniversary and um you know all of the the time over the last i guess six or seven races there's been just some really good work done by those behind the scenes to make this a more compelling product and the ratings are good they're not anywhere near historic but they're building the crowds are building like we're on the precipice of selling this out please let the blackout please let the blackout please let the blackout please let the blackout um which would be awesome so i think that there's good momentum but it's a perfect example also of a series that is in a race that is seeking to just get whatever that little nugget is, that carrot is in front of people who don't watch it now to become fans. And so because of that, I'm going to curveball this right now because we have a few minutes in this segment because I wanted to throw it open to some callers today. And I'm going to do the second idea that we had today. If there's anybody out there listening to the show right now that is attending their first Indianapolis 500 this weekend, 239-1070, We want to hear from you. I want to know why you're excited to go. And what it was, what was the catalyst for you deciding that you wanted to go to this race? I will never forget my first race. Like it was a magical experience. There were story I learned about the power of drinking too much beer as an 11 year old watching people in front of me, as well as I learned about the majesty, majesty and incredible um, spectacle that was the race. That was the Alan Sir Jr. Um, Scott Goodyear battle back in 1992 was my first race going as a 11 year old boy and i'll never forget that moment it was cold it was freezing you know i clung to my dad to try and get to our seats i watched a guy pass out right in front of me it was awesome like it was awesome on every single level that you would want it to be and then watch the most amazing finish while kind of being lifted up so i could see the start finish line from under our paddock seats like that's gonna be someone's moment whether they're 11 whether they're 21 whether they're 51 going to their first race and i'm curious about this whole week because we need that attractive moment. I'm sorry. There's my soapbox, Jimmy. I know you're also a co-host of this show. No, I, I also am as well. And and those are 
Like for me, the larger part of my childhood was built around big family parties with the race on in the background on the radio. Family and, pools. And, correct. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Whether it's family pools or, or cookouts. We were talking a little bit about that with Kristen Airy. Just what a, a, a masterful job that the entire IndyCar radio network does, not just on the 500, but across the board, making it seem just true perfection anytime they're on the air and whether you're going out to your race for your first race, I mean, for me, my, my first ever race as an attendant, or at least that I truly remember and was able to process everything that was happening, was the 95th running back in 2011. And that was obviously when Dan Weldon took it. And I didn't realize the significance of, of that win for him. And obviously, no one could have foreseen sure. him losing his life tragically a few months later after that. But the, the just everybody has a, a story of the first moment that you're there, what you remember most about it, whether it was the race itself or whether it was about just the experience and, and the different interactions that you had while you're there. But for a lot of people that maybe aren't able to go or aren't able to make the time, it is being ingrained within your culture early of these family parties where Memorial Day weekend in Indianapolis and around the state of Indiana is centered around this great event. Yeah. And that's, uh, I think, what we... That's the positive focus on all of this. How does it grow? Are people attracted to the idea that this was the fastest field ever qualifying? And again, I was on the air all this past week and I didn't get a chance to listen or watch a single second of it, which I think probably takes away a little bit from my understanding of how great the weekend was. It's, and the weather was perfect. It sounds like there were a lot of people out there. There was obviously some incredible drama on Sunday that you know, does that carry through does the fact that you had one of the most marketable names in modern american sport and now maybe the first family-ish of american racing in a lot of respects when you you look at um you know the ray hall and force names coming together did graham ray hall's participation in being the one driver who got bumped on sunday and now is back in the race does that lead to a boost are people curious to see if he makes a run up through the field you know we've talked a lot or i've talked a lot on this show and i've been in here we've talked racing over the last couple of years or last couple of months about what the next generation of marketable star is in indycar do we do we want a young up-and-comer to win this weekend or does an elio for five or a tony khan in his final mean more to future success these are all questions that are probably unanswered but i think it's fascinating in this market especially because it's the most important sporting event that we have polo is the biggest torchbearer for me in terms of what it can do for the future of the sport because he's young and he's dominating the month of may right now Mm -hmm. and you combine that with the fact that it's the fastest field ever you combine that with he broke scott dixon's record for a pole run this past weekend and he is one of the biggest storylines in terms of if he wins and if he caps it off i think it could be i don't want to say the best for the sport moving forward but i think it would definitely show you just like i was trying to sell you on and it's a lesser extent right because polo is a much more popular name and, and, and very much on the rise in terms of this sport but it's much like what I was saying with the conference finals right now with Denver specifically. You're waiting for this next generation of star to captivate the national scene, the international scene, even with this sport. You're hoping that that's what happens with Polo in my mind if he's able to get it done and sweep the month of May. And I don't even know what I don't even know what attracts 
an IndyCar driver to a new generation of fans? Like, I'm too old. Like, is it social media engagement? Is it is it a personality off of the racetrack? You can't be dangerous or risky in these cars, especially at this race. You can't right. be reckless. You can't. It's it's virtually impossible for your personality to show through the helmet and through the car. Like if, maybe if you save yourself and then go on to win. Like do we have a spin and win? You know, like Dan. I mean, anything like that. I don't know. Like I don't. It, it, that's really a challenge for me, and I don't think I have any perspective on what that off the track growth looks like because I'm the old man now in the arena when it comes to races. We got a call. Yep. Got a call line one. Dana, first time caller or first time uh, yes, 500 participant, rather? <laughs> yes, for both. Hey, how about that? Thanks for calling in. All right, tell us why. Why, why this Why this race? Uh, I don't think this race in particular um, had any bearing on it. Um, I took my kids to practice. I have two twin boys. Um, I took my uh, took them to practice uh, last year, and they just their eyes just lit up. Mm. They were you know take them to any event, and it's you know it, trying to keep their attention is really difficult. Um, but when I took them last year, their attention span was strictly on race cars and how fast they went, and they were just in awe. So that's to, to me the big selling point is to go to take my kids. Yeah, what what are you most excited about experiencing? since this is going to be the first race well when i tell people it's my first race they go on and on about how it's just amazing um the flyover the um, national anthem you know the the emotions that they have when it when it comes to this and i've never experienced anything like that so i'm looking forward to it um so i was just out at the track trying to scope out uh, we're riding our bikes in from downtown so we're kind of trying to trying to gauge <laughs> how to how to maneuver it but i think just the overall just uh you know as they call it the greatest spectacle on earth i mean I'm, i just wanted to be part of it how old are you <laughs> I'm get, okay no, no i was just curious because for, for for me like like some people like were surprised when my, my first race was as a junior in high school like so i'm, I'm curious like the, gemini have sign your first pra- have you have your first race north of 50 i mean that's awesome what's like, the last four of your social security <laughs> number no i'm just kidding <laughs> no, I, mean, I haven't lived here my whole life but i've lived here for the last 20 years and it's um, awesome I just, I've never thought of it, and my kids were inquiring about it. I'm like, yeah, sure, why not? Let's go. It's free. Why not? Yeah. Check it out. That's awesome. And uh, they were excited. And they're, when I when I told them the next morning that I bought tickets, they were super excited. They never say thank you for most anything. And just, they were like, thank you, Dad. Thank you. So. Man, I appreciate you calling. That's that's such a cool call. Enjoy the race. Looks like you're going to have good weather. That is uh, fantastic. And just have the, have the absolute best blast and take a million pictures. I'm excited. Thank you very much. Thank you for calling. That's awesome. That's that's so special. My wife and I have talked a lot about it. My son's going to be is 12. I was 11 when I went to my first race. I, I've taken both my kids to practice. I think practices are a nice, easy sort of soft landing, you know, cold open type of experience. We kind of went back and forth as to whether or not we wanted to go to the race this year and take the whole family. I don't know if we're waiting until my daughter, who's younger, is old enough to go. It's, but it's, it is like you'll never forget a lot of those those moments. So I appreciate him reaching out to tell that story because that's amazing. Lived here twenty years, and now because of the pull and what he saw in the eyes of his children, he's willing to say, you know what, let's go to the actual race. That's really cool. Turn right back to the phone lines, Luke. Your first time for the five hundred. Yeah, this is going to be my first year going to the five hundred. I was born in Indianapolis. I'm twenty nine now, and 
I decided to go this year. Why? Uh, my Well, biggest thing was my friend gets free tickets through work. So he was like, hey, do you want a free ticket? And sure. Sounds like a good excuse to start drinking at 7 a.m. <laughs> that away. <laughs> you guys have a plan, a path? Like you already had the whole the strategy mapped out or you, you relying yeah. on your friends who've done it before? Well, mostly that, but we do have five parking passes. So we're going to like all five of us meet at um, his house before we go and like try and drive in a caravan together sure. so we can have a nice place to hang out in the parking lot before the actual race starts. That's awesome. What are you? What are your expectations? Like, what are you expecting to see out of out of the race? What would be what would be a great experience for you outside of like you mentioned getting started at seven a.m. and 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 just living <laughs> it up for Memorial Day weekend? Uh, honestly, you know, a tight finish would be cool. Uh, I'm not much of a race fan. My probably best experience watching racing or more like watching figure eight races and crazy stuff like that. But you know, a close finish at the end. Um, just like the experience of hearing the cars and feeling that loudness will be pretty cool i think as well most important question and last one for me what's the first cocktail i mean you can't start really bold it's a marathon not a sprint so what's the first drink at 7 a.m oh miller light okay are you, is, are you gonna miller it the whole way through or are you gonna try and vary as the day goes on i am probably stick with beer through most of the day i yeah. think i don't think sure. i'm gonna get too crazy with liquor but you know somebody Smart. makes some good cocktails and i've had a few beers i'll probably just you know go along with the smart that's a that's not a rookie mistake that is very very smart you're a man well ahead of your time do you dabble uh do you dabble in gambling and if so are you gonna blindly place a wager Ooh, i hadn't considered that but i do like the sports bet and i may have to blindly place a wager do you have one for me we are waiting until Friday, but I will tell you, I'm I'm throwing darts. Uh, our producer Eddie Garrison, though, is going to have a time to shine. Listen to us. Uh, we'll be out at the track on on Carb Day. Give us a listen, and we'll have a okay. bet for you. Sounds good. I'll, I'll listen into the YouTube feed. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Appreciate the call, and thank you so much Enjoy for sharing. Enjoy the race. Oh yeah, thank you guys so much. It's awesome. Love that. I love those. I mean, it's two completely different experiences, and. I just I I enjoy all of that. So thank you for everybody that called in, shared with that one. Uh, what was your first race experience? We've got uh you have ninety seconds. Go. My first, I mean, yeah. first in person, like I said, was yeah. twenty eleven. Eighty seconds now. What do you like? What do you remember most fondly about it? Well, most fondly was just again, anytime you're seeing cars move at that high rate of speed is just electric for anybody. The most negative aspect of it though was I did not prepare properly as a junior in high school uh, with sunscreen. So I was uh, Where were your seats? That one I don't remember. Mm-hmm. My brain my brain doesn't can't go back that far for We had a massive group that went for years and we were in between turns 3 and 4, whatever that is. Is that the the north shoot? I guess they would call that. I mean, it's a massive collection of humanity and at one point in time our ringleader had organized us to park in a lady's front yard and driveway for a, um, a negotiated fee and she let us use her bathroom which was just nice. I, mean, I mean just the absolute <laughs> best thing that you could have just off the neighborhood there on lot eight and it gets started and moving pretty quickly and there were a lot of bad outfits and a lot of bad choices through the years but you know what we had a blast and you know what we were all there rooting on a particular driver that's going to join the program coming up a little bit later on this hour. So I'll show my bias in this one. He's somehow still running the thing. Like I can't even get up at 6 a.m. to go to the race anymore. And this guy's still driving. Uh, we'll talk to Ed Carpenter coming up later in this hour. But it's Kyle Kirkwood from Andretti Autosport next. 
Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. We are pumped for the race. Appreciative of those who called in the first segment who are going to be attending this race for the very first time and sharing all the various reasons why everybody would want to go to the greatest spectacle in racing. And speaking of, not first, second start coming up in this race for our first guest. We are driver heavy today here over three hours. He drives number 27 Andretti Autosport car for Kyle Kirkwood, who will start on the outside of row number five. Hi, Kyle. Thanks for some time. Yeah, no worries. How you guys doing? Pretty good. Compare and contrast this year leading up to race day versus last year, your rookie start. Well, um, yeah, well, it's, it's quite a bit different with Andretti Autosport, uh, given that they pretty much have seven cars under one yeah. umbrella, right, with right. the addition of, of Meyer Shank Racing. Um, so, I mean, it's very, very methodical, their process through everything, and and being with Andretti Autosport, being with massive sponsors and stuff requires a lot more of your energy and time outside of the race car as well. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's been very fluid all the way through the month. We, we feel pretty happy with our car. We didn't have the exact pace that we wanted in qualifying, what we expected. But um, we know we've got a good race car, so that's positive. Kyle, how important was you, as you mentioned, the, the excitement, but also the pressure of representing Andretti Autosport to be able to, to get a win within the, the first three sessions of the season uh, back at Long Beach, Long Beach just a couple weeks ago? Yeah, I mean, it definitely, definitely helped within the team. You know, it kind of set the mood for, for everyone, knowing that we're a race-winning, race-capable um, winning team um, on the 27 crew. So that's kind of been the mood and kind of set precedence for 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 everyone, and uh, that's that's exactly what we have this weekend. You know, we, we feel like we've got a race winning team. Um, we're capable of doing it. Of course, we need some luck on our side and and to be able to cycle forward a little bit. Um, but there's three hours to do it and 500 miles, so uh, I, I think we can get it done. Uh, Kyle Kirkwood joining us. He'll start on the outside of row five coming up this week for Andretti Autosport in car 27. You mentioned having the infrastructure of this team and all of the institutional knowledge of just the drivers and the engineers. I, I know a lot of this is trade secrets, so you can just shoot down the question and say next question. You can pull the Drew Rosenhaus if you want to on me here, Kyle. But <laughs> what is something that you learned about this race or about setup that maybe you didn't know last year because of the infrastructure or just being a year more experienced in the car? Well, um, the, the biggest, I'll, I'll just, uh, what I can share with you uh, about the team, you know, is how, how much they've done in the off season based on simulator work and, and what they've kind of developed over the off season. We're kind of just placing these setups on the car versus last year for me, I was, we'd go out, we'd do a run and be like, okay, well, it feels like this. And then we'd make a change based on that. Whereas this year it feels like we're doing a lot of sim stuff, um, which has been very valuable. But I mean, there's just such a wealth of knowledge within the team and, and even from the drivers, right? I mean, we've got five Indianapolis 500 under our umbrella with, with Simon with, uh, and, um, and Elio. So, I mean, there's a, there's a ton of knowledge within everyone. Um, we all work together super well. Um, but that's really that's really the biggest thing that I've learned is that you can take anything on, on the computer that you, that you put a lot of time and effort into, put it on the race car, and it, and it usually pans out pretty well. Kyle, when 
ever anybody in life, whether it's drivers, whether it's just writing a bio for a website, whatever it is, you, you always have weird questions like, oh, what do you do in your free time? Or, or what do you do off the track? And for a lot of the drivers, it's, oh, I, I do this thing. I attend these kind of games or I do this for you. In, in your bio to start the season, you've referenced the fact that you're always trying to hone your craft further. Even when you're out of the cockpit, you're always training and pushing yourself. How does that routine go for you in terms of in season and off season? Well, it's it's been really nice uh, in season this year because I've got a few really, really good teammates that I can reference off of the best teammates I've had um, in my racing career. So it's been really nice to have their data and their video and watch what they do and understand what they do differently to help myself out Um, because there's a lot to learn from them uh, given that I'm second year in and there's 20 plus years of of experience in, in some of them. So um i've just been gathering as much data as possible from from these guys at at andretti autosport and meyer shank and trying to learn as quickly as possible and it's definitely helped out kyle you're from jupiter florida i predominantly call golf for a living do when you just fall out of a car down there do you just hit a professional golfer like with every step that you take down there because that sort of feels like the hub for things do what do we need to do to make jupiter florida the racing capital of the world because right now it's just where all the golfers hang there's actually a few drivers down there uh some might be surprised but I mean, Ryan Hunter Ray's in, in Pompano Beach. Okay, or, yeah, sure. Oliver Askew's in Sequesta. That's that's Jupiter. Um, Rick Mears is in Jupiter. Um, there's a few IMSA guys that are also in Jupiter. I mean, it's a pretty popular town for, for racing or sports in general, right? Golfing's the biggest thing because there's golfers or there's golf courses kind of everywhere, every corner, every neighborhood that you take or you go into. Um, there's a golf course, but there's no racetrack. So, I mean, it's just a really nice place to live as an athlete you know you get you get out of the cold weather in the winter time and you're able to train um all year round and um it's just such a nice place to live to be honest now do you guys get busted at all racing boats up the causeways and the canals and the back channels trying to get a good table at the restaurants or anything like that or i mean <laughs> oh no uh <laughs> you have to go so slow in the intercoastal yeah. that uh it's much quicker to go to most places by cars, so it's nice to go by a boat. I don't, I don't have a boat currently. I plan on having a boat in in the near future, but um, yeah, that, that is something that's really nice about you. There's there's a lot of places on the water you can travel by boat to. Um, it's just you got to go really, really slow. It's actually quicker to go places on a e-foil board in Jupiter go. than it is on a boat. So. There. Is there still a, a dream golf course or a couple golf courses you would you would like to hit up as you do like to get out to the links in your free time? You know, I've I've yet to play Seminole. That's uh, oh, we can make right. that happen. We can North, make North Palm Beach, and I've I've wanted to play there for a little while. I haven't had the opportunity to. I don't get to spend that much time home, but um, that's uh, that's a goal of mine. We can make that happen, Kyle. I know some people. <laughs> we can totally make that happen. That's it's worth it. It's a it's a bucket lister right there for you. All right, anything you took away from Monday and just kind of race trim setup that gives you a little bit of optimism coming up this weekend? Yeah, I mean, we just kind of solidified everything that we learned from last week. I mean, you practice six hours a day, and then this week you only get four hours between two days. So you're kind of just verifying everything that you learned last week, I think, and. Um, yeah, and that's exactly what we did. We weren't actually that fast in it, but we know why, and we kind of verified some things, so it's important. Sometimes in racing, you have to learn what's wrong to know what's right, and um, that's, where, that's what we feel like we did on, on Monday. Um, so 
we're going to be really good in the race. I know that we're probably probably going to be really good on Friday too. And and we've just been constantly learning, but we feel like we're in a good headspace right now that we can go out with the car that we have ready to go, and we're going to be good in the race. Kyle, I know you already kind of answered this next question for me, but I've been asking all of our drivers that we've had on, as I'm waiting to make my selection for who's going to win the 107th running of the greatest spectacle in racing, why should I hitch my wagon to your number 27 car, and why should I pick Kyle Kirkwood to win it? You know, I, I feel like um, I feel like we've, uh, I've already answered that. Yeah, I feel like we've got a really good race car. Um, all last week, I feel like we were one of the best cars in traffic. We were able to follow the closest. And if you're able to follow the closest, you're able to save the most fuel. Um, you're usually able to save a lot of tires because you don't have to push that hard. And um, that turns into great things as, as the, the laps wind down, right? Um, it's a, you, can, you can race. Some, some people have really good cars to race in, but sometimes they can't uh, save fuel and sometimes they can't save tires and they don't have good pit stops and everything i feel like we've nailed everything in in that sense so uh hopefully we we continue down that train hopefully we nail it for for the race because i think we have potential to be true contenders love that stuff kyle best of luck uh, lead that last lap will do thank you that's kyle kirkwood starts on the outside of row five coming up on sunday man starting on the inside of row five joins us next ed carpenter here on the midday show whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. It is the Fan Midday Show. Jimmy Cook, I'm Will Haskett. It is wall-to-wall getting you set for the 107th running of the Indianapolis 500 coming up this Sunday. Next man needs... Really no introduction. He's a three-time pole sitter. Going to make, I don't even have the time to count up the number of years on here to find out how many times he started in this race. He drives the number 33 car for Ed Carpenter Racing inside of row five and the man who single-handedly keeps all of us in the Butler class of 2003 from getting into the Hall of Fame because of his accolades. He is Ed Carpenter. Hi, Ed. How's it going, Will? Uh, you know what? I'm just here trying to talk about racing today after, you know, another week all around golf. So try and make me sound as intelligent as possible. W- will you here, boss? Uh, I'm sure you'll do fine. Okay. Thank you very much for that. Um, what? Any you know, big motivating speeches from your team boss this week to you, the driver? Like any anything in between the ears that you're telling yourself now? Oh, I mean, just got to go out and execute. You know, I think we've got great cars. You know, we've shown that the whole whole week and a half of prep. We had good speed in qualifying, and now it's just about, you know, getting the right balance for, for running in traffic. I'm starting 13, so I've got a, a little work to do to to find my way up into that lead lead group of four or five cars. And, you know, that's the mission for the, for the first, you know, half to hopefully not three quarters of the race get there to to have a fighting chance at the end and you did a fascinating piece with bob kravitz of the athletic that was posted just a couple days ago and you know it obviously i I followed your entire career you being a butler grad like and my my dad being a butler grad and the bulldogs having such an important part in my life sucking up to all those butler people i mean i'm I'm just trying to try trying to say where i'm coming from like it's go dogs i I always place a wager on them every year but in that piece you're 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 very human about the whole thing this is the 20th start for you and you mentioned the fact that for the longest time it felt like to you if you didn't win the 500 that you might look back and think that your crew was a failure but 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 being a father and 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 and, and being a husband and just realizing there's more important things in life. 
when did you arrive at that perspective and how, if anything, has it changed? You clearly still want to win this race, but changed your outlook and just focus for the 107th running. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't know. It's not like there was a day where something happened. You know, I think it's just perspective that you gain over, you know, chasing something so hard and, you know, there, there's days and there's certainly days still where, you know, I, I bring that home and my family feels it. Um, you know, there, it's just, it's just reality. You know, I, I don't want to, my desire hasn't changed whatsoever. My, my work hasn't changed. I think it's just a mentality and, you know, being comfortable with, with who I am and where I am. And, you know, honestly, I think it helps me just because I go into it, you know, not over pressuring myself, um, beyond normal. And, you know, sometimes when you're, when you're working so hard and forcing things, you know, it leads to mistakes or maybe even a lack of focus just because you're, you're overdoing it. So I don't know. I think just perspective of, of being an experienced guy now and, you know, seeing more of life in general. You know, we could just say we're getting old too. I mean, that's that's a huge. It's a huge part of that equation too. These young pups in here, I yeah. don't understand what 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 age feels yes, speak like. Speak for yourself. Yeah, <laughs> we're the same age. I know exactly what he's talking I about. You do. I don't. But oh you my do. gosh, kids, family. Like I totally get all of it. Speaking of which, one of these days, Ed, you won't be driving in this race. Is there something about race day that you're looking forward to someday to not have to worry about all of the stuff that comes with getting into the car? Uh, not, I mean, I can't really think of anything right now. I love, I love competing. You know, I, I'm sure when the day comes when I just can't do it anymore, um, that I'm still going to miss it. I think any driver that, that has had the opportunity to be a part of this spectacle, you know, it's, it's hard to let go. And I'm sure the emotions come back and you you never don't want to be out there or not be out there. So you know, I, I love every I love every ounce of it. You know, even even when it stings, when we don't get the outcome that we want. Um, you know, but I I enjoy the process. I enjoy the work. You know, we talk about getting older. I enjoy working with the younger guys mm-hmm. and you know trying to help them and also you know keep keep me young at the same time. So it's it's a I still love what I'm doing. What's the difference in the day to day for Ed Carpenter, the owner, versus Ed Carpenter, the driver, in terms of the preparation for this race, but the entire IndyCar series? It, and on top of that, did you ever imagine a day growing up as a kid where not only would you be a driver in this sport, but you would also be an owner? I know you've done it for a number of years now, doing both, but that has to be something that is pretty special to be able to have kind of both feathers in your cap in that regard. Yeah, I mean, I think I've done more now as a driver owner than I did just driver. Uh, especially after this one. But, you know, I, I always had interest in ownership. You know, I, I never certainly didn't think it would happen as early as it did. Um, but I, I enjoy both roles. I certainly, you know, love the days where I get to get in the car. You know, it's, it's a lot easier. I love listening to other drivers and, and teammates talk about how busy they are. And, you know, a lot of them don't even have kids or a wife. And I'm like, you guys have you guys <laughs> no have idea. idea how to I'm like, you're not, you're not busy at all. So, you know, I, I lo- that's one thing I love about May. It's like, I don't want to say it's a vacation, but in a way it is because my my responsibilities are so simple and focused at, at one job that it, it really, it does take a weight off. Um, so, yeah, I, I love it. And it's, 
it, it's easier just having one one thing to worry about and i i do a pretty decent job of just turning everything else off at least on the ownership side of things and, and let my leadership team you know carry the burden and they do a fantastic job at it life is a continuous learning experience 20 some races into your indianapolis 500 racing experience is there something that you're still learning today yeah i mean you know i, I push myself every day and you know, working, working with the team, you know, that's, that's one thing that I've always tried to do, especially as an owner driver is I think it's really important for all the, all the people on the team, especially those that I'm directly working with, you know, from strategist to race engineer and assistants, you know, they need to know that they can be comfortable, you know, pushing me hard and, and being honest with me, even if it's something that I don't want to hear. So, you know, I, I, I enjoy that process. Like, you know, I was talking to our driver coach yesterday and he's like, I know you probably don't want to hear this right now, but you know, I need you to, I need you to do a little better job at this one thing. You've improved a ton at it since we were working on it last year. And he's like, I want, this will be the last time I tell you this month. And I'm like, no, Lee, keep, keep telling me, you know, pound it into me. Like I'm, I want to be, I want to be coached and I want to be the best, best that I can be. So I, I, I enjoy that aspect of it. And if, first time race goers or people that are looking for a selection to be made for who's going to win this race. If they were looking for a reason to back end carpenter in your 33 car this weekend, why should they do it? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I've been fighting for this. It's my dream. Um, I bust my butt for it. And, you know, I think it'll be, may not be the most popular story from an IndyCar standpoint because I'm a part-timer and a local guy. I don't have big social media following because I just don't care to. But uh, this is, this, you know, as a professional career goes, this is all I want, and I'm going to be out there giving it my all. What, Knowing your car and then what this race entails, what is it going to take for that dream to finally come true this week? Uh, I mean, you know, it really is pretty simple. You've got to be there. You know, you've got to be in that, whether it's three, four cars, you know, it gets really hard beyond that to, to make things happen and make passes if you're deep in the train. So first things, we've got to find our way to the front and execute on track, not make mistakes. We've got to be great in the pits. And then, you know, we've got to make the adjustments over the course of the day as the track temp comes up and the wind changes, whatever it may be, to to have the balance that we need in the end to, to lead the last lap. So, you know, I've been really, really confident in my car all month long. Um, you know, so I feel like so long as we can position ourselves in that lead group for the final stint, that we've got as strong of a chance as anyone out there. The great Ed Carpenter starts inside of row five, the number 33 car. I've said the few times I fill in on this show, I'm just here to be the fan voice. So I have no problem saying this. I'm rooting like hell for you. Always am. Good luck this week, bud. Uh, yeah, I appreciate it. Go dogs. See, there you go. we got to get the go dogs in there at the end. I, I was part of a group with 40 of us one year when he was in a, a neon car, and all of us were in head-to-toe neon yes. in between three and four. I, he saw us. I know he saw us. It was <laughs> awesome. All right, more to come. We're one hour in, two hours to go here in the Fan Midday Show. Jake Query next. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. One hour and two to go here on the Fan Midday Show. He's Jimmy Cook. Eddie Garrison's across from me. I'm Will Haskett. 
weekly cameo, I guess. That's how I look at it. It's Wednesday. I'm getting set for the 107th running of the Indianapolis 500. And because I won't be able to freaking watch it on TV here in town, I will be listening to the broadcast right here. And thankfully, we've got a guy who's going to be right a part of the mix of that. Uh, did we wake him up? Is he is he good, Eddie? Is he good? Okay. One and only Jake Query is on the line. Hi, Jake. You know, you did not wake me up. Thank you for the consideration of that. I I, I keep saying to myself that this is the day I'm going to get a nap, and I, I've just now resigned myself to the fact that maybe Tuesday, and I'm cool with that because it's my two weeks of relevance, and I enjoy it. And I love everything about it, so I'm I excited. I I, I want to have fun and joke with you about it, but I started this show on such a serious note, and we had first-time participants for the race coming up this week call in and share why they're going and what they're most looking forward to. And it's it's just too dang easy to get nostalgic about this week and how special it is and how great it is. So I'll try and keep this chat as serious as possible, okay? Um, do we learn anything, or did you learn anything from Monday that you think has bearing on how this race might play out if you're prognosticating it? It's a really good question. I think the thing, here's the thing. I wouldn't say, well, necessarily that I learned anything as much as it reinforced what is very easy to forget. And that is that having a car that is really fast for qualifying and and to put this in, because I, I, I certainly understand and respect that probably the majority of people listening love the the event but aren't necessarily nuanced in the like you know the the exact niches that go into it so the easiest way to say it in layman terms is that the way that you prepare a car to qualify when it's by itself on the racetrack with nothing to disturb it and the way you prepare a car to actually run a race when there are 32 other cars around it trying to wreak havoc on it are two totally different setups. And so to have a really fast car in qualifying, sure, it gives you a baseline and it shows that your car has speed, but it doesn't necessarily automatically translate to how your car is going to run in the actual race. It simply puts you in the best position to have as few cars in front of you as possible at the start of the race. So all of that said, I think there were a couple of cars that didn't necessarily qualify well, that when you looked at how they ran once everything else was thrown around it, they looked like they're really set up well for the race. And the three that jump out to me in that regard are Will Power, Joseph Newgarden, and Alexander Rossi. I think those three guys are going to be very interesting to watch. So that would be the answer, long-winded and probably hopefully not too in the weeds. But I just think that you can't get overly caught up in just the qualifying. And when you look at the practice times and what they were able to do on Monday, you get a better idea for who might actually be good over the course of 200 laps on a full track. Jake, in that same vein, every driver is going to say they're happy they qualify. They're happy with where they're at. Obviously, they want to win the poll. Alex Plo is the only one that can do that this year. Is there a perfect spot or an ideal spot when you talk to drivers of where they would like to be to start this race? You know, it's it's really a, it's a great question, Jimmy, because in the years that I've covered the, the race, the two things that I always find are interesting, that's number one, one of them that you just asked, and the other one is, is which corner or which turn is the hardest. And the thing that has always been fascinating to me is you do kind of get 
an answer, a different answer from everybody. I think there are a lot of drivers that would tell you, you know, by the letter of the law, the pole sitter has the opportunity to set the pace of getting the jump, and they're kind of allowed that first jump to set the pace going into turn number one, and everyone's supposed to kind of fall in behind them by the letter of the law. But in reality, as soon as you hit the bricks when the green's going, the race is on, meaning any position is open for anybody. And I think a lot of drivers would tell you that being on the outside of row number one is actually to the advantage because you can basically cut everybody off. You can dive down to the inside of the racetrack and they kind of have to defer to the fact that you're a bomb coming in. Um, But I think anywhere in the front row is advantageous because you just don't have – and again, when I say dirty air, I realize I lose a lot of people in terms of what I'm talking about. But just, you know, the, the it's kind of like when you go through the car wash and at the last stretch of the car wash, when the when the big fans are on your car drying it, you can see like your mirror and everything's rattling. Imagine being behind 32 race cars as opposed to having nothing in front of you. So you would like to have obviously as little interruption of the air in front of you as possible. So advantage to start up front. But then, long-winded in my answer, the other thing I think some drivers will tell you is that if you're not going to be in the front four or five rows and you have to be in the back three rows, I think some would tell you that it's not an entire disadvantage to just be in row 11 at the beginning to just kind of drop back and let all hell break loose for a couple of laps and then find your rhythm and then start to slowly, methodically work your way through. Jay Query lending his expertise to us here on the Fan Midday Show. The last six winners of this race all started inside the top eight. Five of the last six started in the first two rows. But then the previous five years, no one inside the top ten ended up winning the race. When it looks at it, when we look at these speed, it's not gaps, it's the as close as this field is, I understand that we're kind of running. I mean, it's all the same chassis. You've got two different engine combinations. Are we looking like we're still in this trend of it's just quality drivers at the top are going to be the ones that are still at the end? Or do we have enough sort of parity? And obviously a lot of crazy things can happen, but where you end up with a car that didn't qualify well coming from row six or seven, like we saw for half a decade there in the early 2010s. Yeah. I think the thing that, that drivers are most curious about and obviously fans and, and, you know, analysts are as well, is you kind of never know until the race the subtle aerodynamic changes that they've made, whether or not it's going to allow for a lot of passing. You know, we saw like in 2013, 2014, they made aerodynamic changes where the cars could literally kind of slingshot around each other. And as a result, you know, you had 68 lead changes in 2013. I mean, it was crazy, right? And then another 40 of them, I think, in, in 2014. And then teams kind of started to figure it out, to your point, when you're dealing with the same chassis, the same engines. Teams figure out how to close that gap, and that's why you've seen, I think, the cars that have been starting up front, finishing up front most recently. But I do think that the sentiment is there amongst the drivers that they might have found some some more areas this year to allow better on-track passing. And so there may be a little more of that. I don't know that we're talking about 68 lead changes. Right. I still think it's advantageous probably to be in that front probably three to four rows. But the disparity, you know, back in the old days, when I say the old days, I can say the 80s, right, 70s, 80s. You know, people forget that, like, you know, in 1989, when Emerson Fittipaldi and Alan Jr. crashed, well, 
junior crash, could have probably run the win, with a lap and a half to go, you know, the final lap of the race, lap and a half to go, actually. I mean, they were three laps up on the rest of the field. Yeah. And, you know, those days, so so it's so much now, the, the gap from first to 33rd is so tight that then it becomes about the driver figuring out when it's go time. And I think they all have figured out that the first 150 laps is like rotation and just figuring out where your car is and putting yourself in position to race the last 20 to 30 laps of the race. And that's when it's go time. So it's a matter really of just setting your, your car up to making sure it feels the best. And then it's go time. But the cars are a lot more evenly evenly divided in terms of their speed and their abilities, theoretically speaking, right now than they were 30 years ago. So you could either say that that means it's hard for each other to pass, or you could say that that means it's more up to the driver's skill set to pass. That's kind of up for interpretation. Jake, because of how tight that gap is between first car and 33rd car, and because every 500 is is organic and different, right? One pit stop at the wrong time, one caution, one one wreck can kind of change the entire dynamic of the race. And I understand you're operating yourself at a high rate of speed, trying to keep track of everything when calling the race. But are there any little like check marks or checkpoints for you where you're like, wow, this car has a really good chance to close it out? Like, I know it's unlike any other broadcast, but in basketball or football, you're like, oh, by the time we get to like the third quarter, like six minutes to go in the fourth, it's a real avenue for this team has the best chance to win. Are there little checkpoints like that for you when calling the race? I think for me, you know, a lot of people ask me, Jimmy, they're like, man, so like how much do you have monitors and computers? And I'm like, guys, <laughs> uh, I'm standing on a platform atop the Northeast Vista in open air. I have me, my headsets, and a flip pad. And during the breaks, I'll say like, hey, and, and I can see the monitors now. I mean, the jumbotrons across sure. from me. But I always just write down the top eight, like like intermittently. When, when, they're, when I think of it or I have time or it's commercial break, I write down with a Sharpie on a sheet of paper the top eight. And then that way when they're coming at me, like on a restart, you know, I see a car pop out of line midway up the backstretch, and I, and I look at it and I go, okay, that's five back. Car number five is Elio, and that's Pagano that's four. So Elio's moving in on Pagano for fourth. That's, so the answer to your question is a lot of times I'll kind of look back at that flip chart over the course of the race, and I, and I say to myself, and this car's never dropped below six. Like last year that happened with Marcus Erickson. Erickson, like late in the race, I think it was maybe even after the race when I really went back and looked at my my notebook. But I'm like, man, that dude was like of the 18 times that I wrote down the top eight, was in like 16 of the 18. He never fell out of that front pack. That's one way you can tell just the consistency. And then the other is, to your point, a lot of times a car will, New Garden this has happened with, where New Garden will pit at no fault of his, and then right after he pits, like, the caution comes out, so he gets shuffled back yeah. and goes from running fourth to running, like, 17th. So then you look at it, and you go, okay, over the next stint, and the stint is the term that we use of the number of laps between pit stops. So in the next stint, you go, okay, he was running 17th when he came out of that pits because at no fault of his. He got shuffled back, and now here he is running fourth again. So you're like, okay, so that dude's car is good. Like, he can make up spots. So I do look at that. I look at guys that are able to oscillate and drift back a little bit, but then find their way back up towards the front, which means they can kind of put their car wherever it wants. That gives you an idea as to who the real players are 
when the knives come out in the last 10 to 15 laps. Man, that's just that's such good play-by-play intel. I mean, I'm, I'm nerding out over that. I mm-hmm. hope our audience appreciated that question, but just figuring out information on the fly is awesome. All right, Jake, uh, I'll put your narrative hat on as opposed to the X's and O's of the play-by-play broadcast, and it's a, a very quick two-parter. Story you would like to see most from this race and story that would mean the most to the series coming out of this race. I don't know if those are mutually exclusive. No, it's interesting because I always ask, we're always talking on the network where I was like, okay, so like which one moves the needle the most, you know, which one, the the storyline that I think the fans would most enjoy. I mean, there are two. I would have said a week ago, Tony Kanaan winning the race or Elio. I mean, either one of those because they're veterans, because Kanaan, we know it's theoretically his last race. He lives in Indy now. I mean, there's a lot to love about Tony Kanaan. Castro Nevis, you know, it would be history to see a fifth. The reality is if Graham Rahal won the race, it would be an unbelievable story. Not only because it would be unprecedented to go from 33rd to 1st, because, but, but because of everything that's gone into his last week. Yeah. Um, and I do think that he's, he is a guy that can figure out how to work his way through the field. He's got a good car. He's a better car. <laughs> is it a, yeah. Is it a winning car? Probably not. But it's certainly a top 10 car. And I could see him getting up there and getting in the mix to make it interesting. Um, in terms of what would be the best to move the series forward, quite frankly, Auto Award would be huge because, you know, Alex Pelot is a great story, but he's already a season champion. He's a more reserved guy. Pata Award is a dynamic personality. Mm. He's a larger-than-life kind of character personality. He has a huge fan following, not only from the fact that he was born in Monterey, Mexico, and is a Me- you know, has Mexican nationality, but he went to high school and, and middle school in San Antonio. So he does have, you know, U.S. citizenship as well. He's a dual citizen, I believe. But he has a massive fan following, and he is one that I could see breaking through and becoming a Canaan-level fan yeah. favorite over the course and totality of his career. And that may keep him an IndyCar and keep him focused on trying to win a second one as opposed to maybe trying to make that jump to Formula One with McLaren. So that would be the one that I think would best serve the series. You know, it's so interesting that you say that because I don't know. I I mean, I like to consider myself, you know, responsibly aware of what is happening in open wheel racing, being an Indianapolis resident who loves sports and everything. But I I mean, I couldn't pick Pato Award out of a lineup if he was walking by me on monument circle right now and i think that's that's so interesting to sort of hear that and not to turn this into a golf conversation but i'm coming off a week where i'm looking at michael block's face on tv every five seconds i'm in fedex today and another place today and i'm wearing a pga shirt and they're like oh did you did you see that tournament with that michael block guy he's just like us and i'm like you mean the tournament that brooks kepka dominated and won you know but you know what i'm saying jake it's like the world was captain and i love the fact that they were captivated by this story because i actually think it created sort of this happy everybody could get behind one thing when we were everybody was still trying to figure out how to navigate really cheering for brooks kepka in a major which sort of made this past week of golf um, sort of interesting in that regard, but I told people in 10 years, no one will remember the Michael Block story. They'll remember that Brooks Kepka won, and I'm not necessarily sure a couple of days later that I f- firmly believe that. So you could almost have one of those situations, right, where there's a story within this race that drives more, that drives attention more than who actually maybe wins it? Oh, I totally think that's possible. I mean, perfect example. I mean, you know, when Dan Weldon first won his Indianapolis, or yeah, when Weldon won his first Indianapolis 500, you know, he wore a t-shirt that said, actually won the race. And then 
other, you know, because it was the Danica race. Yeah. That was the storyline, right? I mean, Danica, 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 and people forget that Weldon. Now, obviously, Weldon's became a fan favorite over the course of time. But yes, there are absolutely storylines that that people forget. I mean, you know, Parnelli Jones dominating races and having his his part break, and then people forget who won the race. You know, those kinds of storylines certainly come into play. I, I, I do think the biggest challenge that IndyCar has quite frankly, is two things. Number one, the perception that it is entirely like foreign drivers that that don't appreciate the United States or Indianapolis. Totally untrue. I mean, Tony Kanaan not only lives here now, but, you know, he's a huge supporter of Indianapolis public schools. And, you know, he's he's a Hoosier through and through. Now he married a girl from, from Indiana. So, but in addition to that, let's be real. The drivers are wearing helmets and they're inside a car. You don't see them. You don't don't see them. But they look... So, and that's the big thing, right? So to your point about Pata Award or, you know, Alex Pillow, for that matter, Felix Rosenquist, you know, a lot of these guys, people don't know what they look like. And they're great personalities. They're good dudes. They're, they're, they're good guys. But it's hard to showcase that, and in particular when they're in a car going 230 miles an hour. Um, so they've got to make sure those guys are out in front and Catherine leg, I guess gal as well out in front and doing appearances and do, and they, they do the best they can, I think. Um, but I think a lot of people will, the event is such an overload of the senses in every aspect yep. of the word. I think there are so many people that go for the visuals, the sights, the sounds, the tastes above and beyond the event itself. And so I think there are a lot of people that love the event and then they're like, Oh yeah, some guy won. Yeah. And they don't fall in love with that storyline. Um, and that's that's both the blessing and the curse of the event itself. Yeah, Jake, over your time covering the event and covering the 500, where, if at all, has the mindset or the goals of teams changed for what they want to achieve or what they want to do on Carb Day? Yeah, that's, that's a really good. good. That's a really I, good I think there was a time where Carb Day was truly about, you know, the reality is this the Indianapolis 500 became the signature event in auto racing because it was the pinnacle showcase of the innovation of the automobile and teams and mechanics and engine builders would sit in the lab for 11 months working up their Dr. Frankenstein of a car or, you know, their Frankenstein monster of a car and then come out on May 1st and take their shot to make sure that their car was, the one that was going to win the Indianapolis 500. And so a lot of times they were seeing it and testing it for the first time at Indy over the course of the month. And Carburation Day was the last practice to make sure that every I was dotted, every T was crossed before taking the green flag. In today's world, the reality is that the all of the cars in terms of the chassis, the engine, etc., you know they're 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 all under the same specification and they are basically the same data and information from the year before and the year before so now it's strictly about making sure that they think they have the right angles on the on the wings set up that the feel car that the car feels pretty good and that there are no leaks <laughs> that's basically all they're trying to do is just make sure that they've that they've got, you know, it's school picture day and they want to make sure that their hair looks good, their shirt is in, pre- in fact ironed, 
and that they've got the buttons up, and that's pretty much the extent of it. To this point, Jake, in the evolving nature of this spectacle, the the month, the week, uh, I didn't have a chance because I was on the air last weekend to watch a second of Bump Day, so I had to sort of experience the entire emotions of it through you know print and highlights and everything sort of afterwards. And I'm softening my sort of initial emotional response to it being... I was actually kind of more frustrated by something that ended up drawing a lot of attention because is it really, it's not the bump day that we grew up with. It's not that manufacturer. It's not Penske having to roll their stuff straight to Milwaukee because they couldn't figure out that was, that was the Mercedes experiment, right? When they, when that like right. just completely crashed and burned, pardon the awful pun there. And they had to end up just kind of walking out with their tail between their legs to be able to get to the next race. It just sort of felt like there was going to be a sacrificial lamb for the sake of keeping something kind of alive. And I'm glad it's worked out that Graham's back in the race, albeit with someone having to be injured in order, in order for it to happen. But I don't know, as, as sort of an outsider, I, I don't know how to feel this week about kind of the hype marketing train of something that just still doesn't really feel like why not just have 33 cars you know or 34 do you understand where i'm kind of going with the question here i'm sorry for rambling oh i think it's i think it's a really fair point i think it's probably a more common point than than a lot of people would like to discuss first off i will say in and this was the drama of of the magnitude of this when you're talking about 94 95 you know, in 1994, Roger Penske basically behind, like I was talking about, I mean, they came up with a Mercedes engine that they were privately testing in Michigan with yeah. no one knowing about it. Yeah. They did every, and it was so dominant. I mean, it was the most dominant engine, arguably, in the history of the event. And it was so good that they didn't really have to pay attention to how to set up the chassis and the car around it. So that in 95, when they had a different engine in the car, all of a sudden they're like, well, wait a minute. We didn't bother to really, I shouldn't say bother, but we didn't need to know the specifications of the aerodynamics of the car because the engine last year was so damn good. And so they missed the show in 95. Yeah. This, in, in today's day, there are a number of things that factor in to negating or eradicating that need, you know, the bump and the fact that back then you would have 40, you know, there were 84 entries. Well, I take that back. There were 109 entrants, I think there was, in 1984. And like 68 were, were presented for a qualifying effort or some ridiculous number like that. Because back then, there was a, a number of things have changed since then. It's more expensive now. It's harder to, you know, the engine manufacturers have decided to limit the number of engines that they are actually leasing out, the tires, all of it. All of it comes into play where there are there just aren't the numbers to be able to have 40 cars or whatever it may be. I do think that the tradition of 11 rows of three is important to maintain and to not 100%. go over that with the exception of a few different years where they've had nuances. So whether it's 34, 35, 36, I don't disagree that the, that the manner in which they came up with the bump manufactured probably from my standpoint, an extreme word to use. I think it's a safer word for you to use. I mean that, yeah, no, totally. Yeah, you can you can bash the PGA Tour. I can't. I get but, it. <laughs> yeah, but but that said, I certainly understand. It does lend itself to cynicism. That's the easiest way to say yeah. it. It lends itself to cynicism. But in the end, whether it's manufactured or not, in that time when you saw Graham Ray in his car, helpless, the drama was there, and so 
at some point you look at it and you say, I'm not worried about the means to get here, but whether or not the end justified the means to get here. And I think it did in terms of what they wanted to do. Great answer. Jake, we started the show taking some phone calls for first-time Indy 500 goers. What's the biggest piece of advice you would give to first-time Indy 500 uh, fans? Get to your seat in time. <laughs> Get to your seat in time is probably number one. I would say this. like, it's, You just have to soak it all in. I mean, here's the thing. It's an all-day event. There, it's the one thing where there's not going to be a single convenient thing. If you're going there for convenience or you're trying to shave off inconvenience, then stay home. True. Because from the time that you wake up and leave your house to the time that you get home, nothing that you planned is going to go exactly as you thought. You're, you are going to be in an event on Sunday where one in every 1,100 people in the United States is there. Literally. Okay? And... You just have to soak in and admire and appreciate that you are sharing an experience, whether you're a fan of the actual race, whether you think it's too loud, whether you think it's too hot. You have an opportunity to share an experience with a third of a million people that all have some sort of a connection that they'll take away from it. And that's what I would tell people to sit back and kind of think a moment to appreciate. In addition to that, when they play taps, I know that it's for the fallen heroes of this country. For me personally, I take that a step further by also thinking about my loved ones who are no longer with my family and what that event meant to them. And I make it a personal moment for me, which I think makes it special. But the other thing I would say in conclusion, guys, is this. I've been very lucky and I've been very fortunate to have a career that has just kind of fallen my way at no credit to me. And... It's very surreal for me, and it's very flattering for me, even though I realize it's probably hyperbole, but to to, to hear you refer to me like my expertise of the event, I'm not an expert about it. I'm not any more knowledgeable about it than anybody else. I'm just a kid that grew up in Indianapolis and had a love for this city, and as a result, a passion for the signature event of my childhood that put our city on the map. And so... Just by going back to it year after year after year, I guess eventually even the dumbest people like me can carry a little bit of knowledge from it through osmosis. But I would ask people to go to it and realize and appreciate that it's not about being an expertise, having an expertise of the event, but having an expertise for the environment and the appreciation of it. And if you do that, it will accentuate what I think is the greatest sports day in the world. Always the best at selling himself short. That is Jake Query. You can hear him tonight on Beyond the Bricks at 8 o'clock. Don't sell yourself short, man. It's your it's great institutional knowledge. Thanks for your time, man. I am 6'4". All right, guys. Be good. <laughs> Thanks, Jake. There it is. I knew he couldn't get out of here without a joke. Uh, yeah, a lot of great points there. And um, for anybody going for the first time, I think he just he said a lot of that stuff. And if you have the means to do so, I'll add one little caveat to it. Like if, you know, if an extra 40 bucks or 60 bucks isn't going to um, hurt you if you're going to the race, like tip nicely at the concession stands. A lot of people are giving their time. It's fundraisers for places. There are the people that are out there running the little um, bicycle powered um, or rickshaws, whatever they call them, sort of around to shuttle people. Like getting one of those and take a ride if you got 10, 15, 20 bucks on you and just, you know, help all the people because the I think the economy of it all. Um, it's, you know, we do events in this city better than any other city. And I've been to a lot of them to see a lot of different events. And then this is kind of the highlight of another one of those massive events where it's just, 
I don't know of how many places you could throw 300 to 350,000 people together in a sporting event and have it come off as, I mean, there's a lot of organized chaos in my twenties. I was definitely a part of some of those very chaotic sort of moments. And yet there's this just sort of community collaboration that I think is a part of it, whether it's the pit to the paddock to wherever you might be, you know, sitting, whatever your socioeconomic inkling is that takes you to wherever it is like sweet life all the way to the spots where you can't actually see the cars very well i mean you know it's mm. it's just always been i think it's an amazing uh testament to our community so that was me attempting to talk as eloquently as jake does about the race but as someone who doesn't even get to work in it i just i recognize just how special it is so i appreciate him sharing that and hope anybody else that's going for the first time enjoys all that information jimmy i mean it he's right without the Indianapolis 500 without IMS, without everything that it means to this city and this state, the whole like jokes and like random comments. I'm not saying we'd fully be in this spot in 2023, but like I look and I maybe I, I as ignorance, I look at like Nebraska or like North Dakota or I look at like just further you go that way. Like, oh, why, why would I go there? He's right. You ask anybody or anybody Identity. ask you where you're from and you tell them from Indianapolis. Boom. Almost guaranteed that's the first question you're going to get. My analyst for this past week, Jeff Sluman, who won the 1988 PGA, is currently on his way or already in the Mediterranean. He's going to the Monaco race this week. He's like, I got a race to go to this week. I was like, oh, you, you got the crappier of the two, I guess. You got to go <laughs> watch the F1 boys around Monaco. Okay, all of that loving, and I appreciated the answer of Jake. We haven't really gotten into some of the other stories of the race. We've got time to do that. I've also got an idea for some other callers. It's going to be on the opposite end of the experience spectrum. We'll get to that as well. Cold schedules? You said okay, sorry. I just want to make sure I didn't know it's that's the, in my game predictions. Yes, the fan midday show on 93.5 The fan save me. Whether it's audiobooks or all time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at kisqali.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. It's Fan Midday Show from the DriveHubler.com studios. I'm Will Haskett with Jimmy Cook and Eddie Garrison. We're talking 500 pretty much wall-to-wall today, although if you want to get into some other sports stories, Jimmy, I am all ears. Wouldn't it be turn-to-turn? Wall-to-wall, turn-to-turn. So we're going to come full circle is what you're saying? Yeah. Mm. (laughs) Well, we haven't really covered i would say four turns worth of stories it's kind of been the same story we've kind of been stuck in like first and second gear yeah we haven't really gotten i would say like deep deep into the weeds of the 500 so just for that suggestion i think we should open it up to the phone lines eddie so you can answer some phone calls 239-1070 all right here it is i want veterans this time we heard great great calls from a couple of first timers that are going to the race this coming sunday in the very first segment that was awesome now i want veterans who are loyal to their particular seat location. And I want you to give me the pitch. This is all positivity. I don't want actual trash talk. I want like the positive pitch as to why your seat is the best seat at the 500. Well, right? we- so if you're a turn two loyalist, okay. I want to hear why. If you are, if you've been underneath the paddock at the start finish line for 20 years i want to hear why if you're out there partying with me for decades between three and four i'm sorry and i want to hear why like that is the best seat going because everybody has their spot right they 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 go back like very few people i think are truly every year being like man can we just like upgrade a little bit more can we get a little bit farther here no you get your spot you go with your crew 
I want to know where your spot is, why your crew loves it, and why it is the best place to watch the race every year at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. 239-1070, go. While we wait those calls, you ask for another sports topic. Please give me something funny. So, so, so here you go. Uh, Jonathan Taylor has officially found a new agent. He will be signing up with First Round Management, which is the same agent of star linebacker Shaq Leonard. So... We'll ask it. Does that mean Jonathan Taylor is now going to be locked up with an extension because he has the same agent as a teammate? Oh, Let's look, go. I think we have a caller. Let's. I don't have a call screener in front of me, so Jimmy, you what can do you go got, ahead and Rob? do that. What do you got, Rob? You a loyalist to one particular row at the Speedway, one particular section? Let's go, Rob. What do you got? Well, yeah, we're high in turn three. We've been high in turn four before. We've been at the top of the straightaway. Uh, we have not been high in turn one just because we got a group of 20 people and it's hard to get up there to move there. But a few years ago, we got high in turn three. It's easier to see the cars coming at you to see if they complete yeah. the pass going into the turn rather than it is to sit up and forth and see if they completed the pass before they get down in turn one. We think turn three, we could see half the track from there up high. That's the place for us. Yeah, like kind of. There's like less distraction watching cars come down the back stretch than there is on the front stretch. Rob is the way that I've always sort of thought about it. Being in turn three is like you really get to see racing and setup as it comes through. I mean, yeah, you're missing the pit stops obviously, but from yeah. just a pure racing standpoint, I've always found kind of that interaction with the cars coming down the back stretch into three and then out through four to be sort of the most intimate of watching racing, actual racing of the race. Yeah, we really like the seats, and again, when you got a group of 20 people, it's hard to move very far, very yeah, fast. It is. Rob, yeah. thanks for the call. I really appreciate that. Yeah. I wanted to point out, he said that they've uh, they've been high in turns three and turn four. I've been high in turn three and four before, <laughs> but I think he was talking about relative seat proximity. Seat location. Yeah. Sound yeah. like, sound like. Sorry, I, just, I may have thrown that out there. Uh, yeah. Um, who is the, uh, okay, we got the agent here. So we're going to like just do this awful Jonathan Taylor story in between taking phone calls <laughs> on people. Um, so let's go. Highest rap sheet on Twitter is what you're looking for. No, no, no. no I'm looking at okay. the highest NFL running backs coming up, paid running backs this year. Christian McCaffrey's making 16 per. Alvin Kamara, 15 million per season. Gross. Dalvin Cook, 12.6. Like Alvin Kamara, I'm grossing the money, just and to clarify that. Derek Henry, 12.5 million uh, Nick Chubb rounds out the top five at twelve point two million per season. So, is this new agent going to get Jonathan Taylor a contract? I don't think you get Christian McCaffrey money. You don't want to be you, clear. Well, if you're a Colts fan, you do you don't not want, want Christian like, McCaffrey money. This is money. the negotiation window sure. that we're going to have here. So, would you be okay with twelve and a half million a year for a running back? Depending on the years, I could stomach it. Because of how talented he is. You've got one year left, right? And you're on a rookie deal for your quarterback for another... You know what? If you signed him to a three-year, $37 million contract, so that's 12 and change or something like that, that'd be okay because you don't have to pay your quarterback yet. My, My biggest issue with it all, and there's so much hinging on what Anthony Richardson becomes, but if you're trying to build a championship team, it does not get done with highly paid running backs. It just doesn't happen. They are a dime a dozen. This is awesome. Find me another bad story to talk about while we talk to... I can do that. No problem. Let's go, driver. Let's go to John. (laughs) Uh, uh, Okay. I I did not... There are two Johns there, so Eddie went with the uh, 59th straight Indy 500, John. 59th straight, John. Come on. Yes. That's awesome. How old were you at your first one, John? 
I was 12. Ah, see, I, I, I've, I've skipped a few. I was the same age I was when I started. I grew up literally right off of 30th in Georgetown, so it was pretty easy for me to get to the race. Back then, um, you know, you could be a 12-year-old kid and walk over to the track and Hell, I was going over there when I was eight years old all by myself. They didn't think anything of it. Now my parents would have been put in jail. <laughs> but, uh, Give me your best seat. I have sat our seats right now for the last 20-some years, even though I haven't always sat there, have been in the third turn up at the top, just like the previous caller said. Wow, consensus. go to races, and I have sat in the first turn, low, front row, uh, fourth turn, and in several suites. And if you go to racing, races doesn't matter whether it's 500 or not, the best way to see the cars make the moves as they're coming toward you. And from our seats at the top, I can see coming off the apex of two all the way down the back stretch through three until they come out to the wall at the end of four. So you see half the track. The only downside is if you're in the sun, you end up with a hell of a sunburn. Yes. Um, and the sun's in your eyes, so you got to wear shades. <laughs> other than that, hey, I wouldn't sit any other way on a track. The first turn would be my only other option. But like the previous caller, I have about 16 tickets, and getting That's them hard. in E is going to be impossible regardless of how long I'm That's a good point. Yeah, John, thanks for the phone call. The, uh, the, the sunburn that gets you that no one ever realizes is the area just above the knee. Because you typically put the sunscreen on below the knee when you're wearing shorts. Then you go sit out there in three and four, and those shorts kind of creep up on you, and boom. Next thing you know, you're cherry roasted on the top of the knee. So there's another one of those tips for the first-timers. If you're going to be out in the sun, make sure we're giving nice thigh spreads, a couple of reapplications throughout the course of the day right there on the thigh. Uh, make sure you get that sunscreen on before you start drinking, too, because a lot of times you know you kind of lose track of time and everything like that. You put that sunscreen on there. It was just announced a little bit ago. Oh, we'll hold that thought. We'll hold, the, we'll hold the thought. Something was just announced a little bit ago. We'll get Will's reaction to it without any further content other than the fact it involves what, what a tease. somebody And your favorite city. seats at the track here on the Fan Midday Show. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Quick final segment to wrap up the second hour. Jimmy, we got anybody else want to share their seat love with us? Let's let's go other John. We went with John 59 straight. Let's go other John in line. Turn on your mic. My goodness. Hi, John. Hey, how are you? Great, you. Good, thank you. Hey, I sit in, uh, I sat in uh, turn two in the uh, upper Vista deck there, Southeast Vista deck. Sure. So I love those seats. I got nobody in front of me. I can stand up if I want to. I love watching the cars kind of snake down the back stretch. Me, I wouldn't change those seats for anybody, anything. I feel like we have, and I have no statistic to back this up, John, but I feel like we've had more incidents out of one into two than most other places around the track. Do you get a lot of action there? Oh, yeah. Last year in particular, I think every wreck was... Uh, yeah, that sounds right. Groshan wrecked in turn two. Uh, Sage Karam wrecked in turn two. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot of activity there. Yeah, that's awesome. Thanks for sharing. Appreciate the phone call. I think a lot of it has to do too with you know you get a lot of the the grandstands and everything coming down one out of four down the straightaway into one. Again, this is not me being a racing expert. This is me making it up. But I think there is some truth to this. Is there's you're blocked away from a lot of the wind that comes down there when you come out of one into two. 
you're way more exposed to the elements, especially going down the backstretch there. And a lot of times you see those cars kind of hit a little bit, depending on where the wind's coming from. I haven't actually looked at the wind forecast for Sunday. The teams obviously have, they know where that's going to be an impact and where things could get a little bit hairier. Did you want to, you want to hit me with something really fast? Here? No, I, got, I'm just curious. I've a minute to react to whatever this breaking news is. I was just curious to build off of that whole, you know, thing about being behind the wheel. And, and we talked a little bit about just the, the importance of, of in general being able to dominate early. Well, there's no worry about dominating for a pace car driver. Uh, Tyrese Halliburton is going to be the pace car driver. Well, for mm-hmm. you, the last pace car driver that was a part of the Pacers was Victor Lodipo. Yeah, um, my he wasn't city. here that long after this that. Does that concern you about Tyrese Halliburton's future now that he's driving the pace car? No, but I mean, come on. <laughs> Superstars are only as superstarish as their next big contract. So, do you think he's going to go faster next year now that he's driving the pace car? uh, You know what? I think he plays at a perfectly appropriate pace for what he needs to do for that job. And we're going to see who he's going to have as a running mate coming up here at the NBA draft next month. And I'm excited to, I'm excited for that one, but I'm not going to get either behind or or I'm not going to get depressed or more optimistic because of this one because the last time we had the face of a franchise drive this car we know how quickly that all sort of worked out Eddie has just changed my out time I was literally going to throw a break in three two and oh look we have another minute and 40 seconds to talk through this so you're amazing so you're not saying there's an ego boost of epic proportions that happens from driving the pace car I, I'm not going to point to driving the car as the reason why Victor Oladipo all of a sudden decided this wasn't his city anymore. Because it, if, like it my did, city. if it did at some point, we got to start having a real please look at the pace car. What's you, going on there? Please tell me that you watched Jimmy Butler do that and didn't just laugh your ass off at that because of what he was uh, because of that whole thing here. Like I mean, and of course it was on a team where Oladipo presently is injured again and sitting on the bench watching. And here it is, my city. It's like so. You went to the Heat. It can't be your city because there's a guy on your team who's already apparently put his flag down and said that it's his city. So you left what was your city and went to somebody else's city. I'm just, you know. I don't think he was saying city. He wasn't? I don't think Butler was saying city. Oh, what was he saying? That's a word I can't say on radio. Does it rhyme with bit? Yep. Okay. That's what I thought. I thought you were saying my city. Well, maybe it is Victor Oladipo's city, and that's actually just Jimmy Butler's ish. So that's Jimmy Butler's ish, and still Victor Oladipo's city. Maybe okay, it works out. They're sharing. It's Tyrese Halliburton's now. He's driving sharing the is car. Caring. Sharing is caring. Eddie, thank you. Gosh, you guys, this is such a positive day today. I wish Tyrese Halliburton all the best driving that car. Um, I couldn't imagine how cool that experience is. And Adam Driver, Kylo Ren himself, mm-hmm. will be lightsabering the flags up from uh, top of the starting position. So that's really cool as well. All of that goes in the great marketing strategy that is this week and is this race. We'll talk to the guy in charge of the marketing at IMS, Michael Kaltmark, next. Final hour here on the Fan Midday Show. I'm Will Haskett. He's Jimmy Cook. This is my unfortunate uh, karaoke song. I love this song. I cannot. Well, why not you're singing it? Because I can't sing like Brian Adams. Like I want to make this song work, but I don't have that octave. So it, I've failed miserably trying to sing this song a couple of times in karaoke. I need a more of a bass, more sure. like a, probably more of an Eddie Vedder type of song, a deeper baritone. Um, this segues beautifully to our next guest because we're going to talk about what's going on at the Indianapolis 500 because our next guest is the Senior Director of Marketing at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And if you want to completely 
take this interview and throw it down the toilet, I can tell you that I once did karaoke with him at a bar to In the Jungle. Or no, sorry, The Lion Sleeps Tonight. That's awesome. The Lion Sleeps Tonight. Um, a long time ago and a few cocktails ago. He is the great Michael Kaltmark. Uh, hi, Michael. Are you hanging up now? <laughs> no, I'm not. But I can't believe you uh, divulged that on air. Who hit the high notes? There's a, there's plenty of other things about trip that we will not divulge on the air, but that was that was definitely a highlight of it. The high notes? Yeah, Who hit the high notes? Both one. of you or just well, you have you have to both have a crack at it. Okay. Right? Okay. It's a team yeah, effort. I got a I got a nice falsetto. It was okay. Yeah, it was it's fine. We that was before <laughs> this is, you young kids, this is before social media or phones that took video or anything like that. Thank so it God. was, yo, yeah. God, is that the truth? <laughs> Speaking of young kids and taking videos and stuff, Michael, I, I, I asked this question really at the top of the show. Like, I don't know where things are from a social media standpoint, marketing standpoint, trying to attract new people to come to this, I imagine is a lot different than it was 30, 40 years ago. You're way more connected to sort of that. So I want to start off with that. This experience ticket sales are looking great numbers are looking sort of great attracting a new generation of race fans to come to ims what does that entail and what does your team look to try and do to leverage all of those things that we're trying to keep our kids off of when we go home every night <laughs> well i'll tell you well the secret formula i think to that is actually the snake pit so when it comes to the racing itself i think we rely a lot on uh our tried and true patrons and so that's why you'll see out here on practice days and qualifying days, uh, kids 15 and under are free. And so if, if we've got, um, you know, our blue bloods coming out like they always do, that's our incentive to get them to bring the young ones. And they've been doing a great job. So uh, that's sort of the evangelical work they can do. And, of course, we certainly come alongside them and try to help. I know IndyCar uh, is doing a great job at uh, accessing a, a younger demographic by positioning the driver's uh, in a way that's that's relevant, uh, but on the tr the track side, the promoter side, it gets a little bit more difficult. So we try to have our core audience do that by getting their you know um, their young ones in that are 15 and under for free uh, when it comes to those practice and qualifying days. But then back to the snake pit, I think that's our secret formula to introduce um, a younger demographic to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and, and the Indy 500 uh, without actually kind of forcing them into a race. Uh, they're into EDM, they're into festivals and concerts. And so we've got more than 20,000 18 to 25 year olds out in turn three, uh, yeah. at an EDM show with pyro going off. And they, I'm not sure if they realize there's a race no. happening as well, but it's their, their sort of pilgrim pilgrimage on Memorial day weekend. And eventually I think there's a shelf life for EDM concert going. Eventually they age out and they say, well, We've always gone to the track on Memorial Day weekend. We should probably go, and we can go to the infield. Maybe we won't go to the snake pit. And then eventually they, you know, they settle down. They may have kids. And they're like, okay, well, I'm not going to do the infield anymore. I'm going to pay for grandstand seats. And so we're starting to see that evolution. And um, I, think, you know, I think promoters across the country would kill for something like the snake pit, and we have it. So we're trying to leverage it uh, to the best of its ability. How do you find the right balance between trying to garner new audience or new race fans of any age versus not letting you know your hardcore diehards feel left out through that process? Yeah, I think Jimmy, I think sticking to the traditions, right? Uh, this place is nothing if not for you know the traditions that we uphold, and so try not to taint the product or uh, any of the traditions we have. And I think that really resonates with our core audience. That's what keeps them coming back because. They, you know, you heard Jake talk about it when he, you know, he listens to taps and, and, you know, that's not going away. And so he's able to have his moment uh, for himself. And I think we have 
uh, those sorts of experiences built in, uh, whether it's race day or during the month of May or any of our other events. You know, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, thanks to uh, Roger Penske's leadership, just keeps getting better with age. And so I think if we preserve um, that aspect of, of our facility and of our events, uh, then we're not alienating our core audience. They still feel like um, it, it's um, <clears throat> the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and the Indy 500 they know and love. And um, and so that's not going away, but yet we're able to be a little bit additive uh, to the recipe and still attract the younger demographic. So with Michael Kaltmark, Senior Director of Marketing at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Many of you might know him as the dog guy from Butler for all yeah. of those years, which is how I actually had to introduce Michael to my co-host today. I was like, do you remember the guy that had the dog at Butler? It's still, the, yes. still a famous thing. Now, what many people not know about Michael is during the whole time at Butler, he was moonlighting and doing communications work for Ed Carpenter Racing and before that for Vision and pretty much has been with Ed for such a long period of time. We had Ed on earlier in the show. And I've been asking a lot of people, Michael, about sort of learning experience and how it informs what you're doing now from all of that experience in the pits and with a particular race team this month and now being on the as you mentioned the sort of the promoter side of working for IMS what from those years did you learn that most informs some of the things that you do now working for the venue that's a really good question I, I think um, it gave me a lot of perspective and maybe maybe some empathy for my counterparts uh, on the team side but I think uh, as a promoter, obviously, you know, first and foremost, I'm trying to um, position the, the brand and sell a bunch of tickets. And um, and so at the core of what I do, uh, that's it. And then beyond that, I've got a lot of stakeholders, uh, certainly the people that buy the tickets. But then we've got the people who compete here and vendors and, and all these different uh, stakeholders across the board. And fortunately, I've had some experience in most of those areas. So I've been on the competition side. I've been I've been a fan. I've been in the stands with Will wearing neon shirts rooting for Ed Carpenter. Uh, I'm not supposed to share that either. Come on now. If we're going to student. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so, I, you know, I think it gives me some perspective in terms of um, what we're all about and how we position ourselves. And then when it comes to just interacting with these people and making it a good experience, whether that's our, for our fans or competitors or vendors or partners, um, you know, I'm going out of my way because I, I kind of have a sense for what they need and what they want. Um, and I think it just makes uh, certainly me better, but I think it makes our whole team better. Uh, we're really conscientious about uh, what we're doing here and um, the experience that we're trying to provide. And so, yeah, I think I lean back on those last 23 years, kind of dabbling in motorsports um, a lot. Uh, it's, it's just given me a, a lot of perspective on what we're trying to do here at IMS. I, frankly, I, I want I want us to truly be the racing capital of the world. Uh, it's easy to sort of uh, you know, put that flag in the ground during the month of May. Uh, but then when we get past May and we, we host NASCAR or we host IMSA, um, I really want those folks to come here and think, man, they do it different at IMS. It, it, it feels unlike any other track we go to. They're, they're first class. Um, and so I, I really pour myself into that because I know what it's like to be in their shoes. I know what it's like to go from track to track to be a part of the traveling circus. And so I want the experience at IMS to be, to be completely unique and different in a good way. Michael, I've never been a hardcore concert goer, but I did have an opportunity a couple of years ago to see Shaq DJ in person, and it was awesome. Like it was great. He was out at Summer League in Las Vegas, and it was it was amazing. Like it was truly just a spectacle, just because of how towering Shaq is, but how much yep. fun he has doing this. 
what went into the process of of landing him and how excited were you guys from a marketing perspective on that snake pit angle of of having him be a part of this event so we work with uh chris schroeder chris schroeder productions and he's he's pretty ingrained in the um the edm um you know scene and so he helps us each year assemble a lineup and he did a fantastic job last year uh with the likes of you know dead mouse and others and so um we felt like it was going to be a challenge this year to, to to top that. And he came through in spades and he, and as we were putting the lineup together, he says, what do you guys think of DJ diesel? And we just look at each other and we're, I think, I don't think it clicked right away. We're like, I'm not familiar. And he goes, no, no, no. Shaquille O'Neal, DJ diesel. We're like, we have to have him. We don't even know if he sounds good. Like we've got to have him. Um, and so uh, we were thrilled with that addition to the lineup and think that he's a big draw. He, he gives some credibility to the event outside of our, you know, typical EDM concert goer, because pretty much everybody in the stands has probably heard of Shaquille O'Neal. And, you know, most people in the stands have no intention of setting foot in the snake pit, but they've heard of Shaq. And, you know, for the most part, I think Shaq probably has a pretty high approval rating across the United States. And so if Shaq's at the Indy 500 and in the snake pit, well, okay, I can get on with that. That's that's cool. That, that adds some credibility to the Snake Pit and our event uh, overall. And so it's it's good. And we're going to try to leverage uh, Shaquille as much as we can. Of course, it's playoff time, and he has a day job. And so uh, we're trying to balance that uh, right now uh, with the NBA season. And so, you know, obviously he's too big for a two-seater, uh, but we're looking into just about anything else that we might be able to get him to do besides uh, DJing a set at the Snake Pit. Michael, it's an interesting segue, too, when you talk about this event within the event and wanting to be sort of the racing capital of the world. But we've seen other things take place at the track, whether it's, you know, standalone concerts, uh, holiday lights, you know, things through the years that kind of have utilized the venue for things beyond racing. What's the conversation like when it comes to, you know, you obviously have the biggest event potential venue in all of central Indiana and one of the biggest in the entire world, but those can be you know kind of uniquely problematic i would guess based off of what the things are when it comes to that balance of having an amazing venue but also it being associated with racing what are those conversations like when it's like well do we want to try and do something different with this space yeah i mean you've got the largest sporting venue in the world and um you know i think you're you talked about some of the things that we've we've done with you know having uh holiday lights and uh just standalone concerts uh, since uh, Roger Pinsky and company took over, we sort of narrowed the focus and gotten back to our roots of, of racing. And I don't think that's a bad thing. It helps the team, certainly, um, and, and kind of keeps us from getting spread too thin. And so when we're not hosting races, there's still something happening out here day in and day out. It's usually uh, OEMs and car manufacturers renting the track and using track time to host uh, VIP clients or um, preferred dealers or whatever. And so the track stays busy um, most days out of the year. However, there are opportunities outside of, of just racing uh, where we can host events. And we try to do that strategically now in a way that makes sense uh, for the business and for our people. And so, um, you know, we've, we've hosted conferences and um, special exhibitions with partners like Shell and things like that. But one of the big things we have coming up where, where we felt like, okay, this is an opportunity for us outside of racing that makes sense for our people and our, and our, and our business, um, but probably doesn't spread us too thin or detract. And that's 
next year's solar eclipse where Indianapolis will be in the path of totality. And so um, we, we thought, well, you, you need to be outside for that. And there's a great STEM component uh, involved sure. with this. And so we reached out to NASA and they said, yeah, we'd love to partner with you. And so next April, we're going to you know, be a host site, an official host site for um, you know, the eclipse that's coming through. And so that, that's, those are ways where we look to try to leverage the venue in a way that's beyond just racing. And, and do so strategically. And so as those types of things come up, uh, I think we'll jump at it. But if it, when it comes to just standalone concerts, you know, I think Live Nation and, and our venues in town do a great job of that. They, we don't need to fill that that void. Please tell me what it's like to be like, hey, hi, NASA. I'd like to, uh, uh, can I talk to one of your rocket scientists, please? Like, what's that phone call like? <laughs> it's really awesome. They have a whole group that's sort of dedicated to this. So they've picked like, half a dozen locations um that are in the path of this eclipse and um and so we did some outreach because we have some relationships there a lot of indycar drivers have done some uh, collaborations with folks at nasa over the years and so fortunately we had a contact that we could reach out to and um and they were game right away and they were in fact they were here uh last weekend uh touring the facility again kind of to you get to see it in event mode and uh, they were impressed by what they saw. And so we have some big plans in the works uh, for next April when, when the eclipse comes through, it'll, it'll come through on a Monday. And, um, and so we've just been thinking about, okay, that's a school day. Can we get schools involved? I mean, this place can hold over 325,000 people, right? So I'm not saying we'll have that many for the eclipse, but we're going to go out of our way to see if we can. And, um, and we're and some of the activations we're talking about on site uh, could be really cool for this thing. So again, we want to do things in a way that um, set us apart. And so I think if solar eclipses go, this may be the greatest spectacle in eclipse viewing uh, to ever happen. And uh, it, it's going to trademark be that. <laughs> I'm on it. What, what's the craziest? marketing or ad campaign throughout your time here that maybe you thought of or dreamed up that either was maybe too big or or too many moving parts of it to be able to to launch for the month of may oh i don't know jimmy i that'd probably be a better question for doug bowles but there's just so many things i think we think we we throw things at the wall all the time i think on online i read people's comments i think they think we don't do anything here, but the reality is we're always talking about celebrities we could bring in or stunts we could pull off. I, I know that's all Doug Bowles thinks about. Like he is a promoter at heart. And so he's constantly texting us or coming into our office with ideas. And then we got to figure out a way to either make it happen or tell him no, uh, reluctantly. Um, so I think we often think, uh, think big and try to try to find ways to, to, you know, do the, you know, do the extraordinary um, because we feel like um, the Indy 500 being the greatest spectacle um, deserves that sort of thinking. And so, you know, I, I think you can think back, Jimmy, to things like the the Hot Wheel stunt where they, you know, oh, they yeah. jumped the truck. You remember that one, oh, Will? Yeah, I think oh, we were out in turn three. We were that for one. that, yeah. Uh, we had a great view. Um, and then, uh, you know, whether or there's Red Bull guys jumping motorcycles around the track, some of that stuff. Uh, we last year we did a Red Bull keys of the track and guys were doing things on dirt bikes around here that I never thought would people would go for. And I'm not just talking about driving them through tunnels. Like they were driving them on grandstands and other things. And I thought who approved, who approved this? Uh, but it was awesome. It made for great video. So I can't t- come up with a good one. I'm sure Doug Bowles would have sure. a good example for you, Jimmy, but I, I got to tell you, we're constantly thinking about big things that we could pull off here that nobody's ever done. Um, 
because that's what we do. I, you know what? The other day, we were, I was in a meeting and uh, and um, Tom Cruise's name came up. I don't know out of nowhere. And, <laughs> and Roger Penske goes, "Yeah, Ma- Roger Penske goes. Well, you think he could drive an Indy car?" And uh, <laughs> and we were like, "Yeah, he could probably do like a test lap." And and then Roger asked me if I saw the Maverick movie, and uh, I I was. I couldn't believe it. I didn't know Roger watched movies, but he does. He liked it. So there you go. Uh, more pressure to try and make all of those dreams come true when they throw out big names or getting your two sons to meet Adam Driver slash Kylo Ren when he's in your town because uh, that's going to be a hard ask right there, Dad. I know. I showed my kids uh, yesterday. I'm like, look who's waving the green flag. And they were like, Kylo Ren? And I said, yeah. <laughs> And then they're like, do we get to meet him? And I was like, probably not. <laughs> probably not. Crushing dreams. <laughs> Two years ago, though, we had a couple guys from Dude Perfect, and they just happened oh, to my run gosh. into them. Yes. And that was gold. Thank God I didn't have to arrange that meetup. They just, it was just, you know, serendipity. They ran into him, and it was great. But yeah, I, I make no promises. Yeah. Can't you, do it. Can't do that. Uh, what, what are you most excited for this weekend? Oh, well, we've got. Um, it's awesome. We've got less than, I don't know, just we've got a few thousand reserve seats left. Um, tickets are just flying out the door. And snake, uh, snake pits up. Carb day's way up. Um, the Indy 500 is up. Um, and not just over last year, but we're starting to look at previous years. We're starting to knock on, starting to knock on the door of 2016. We're, we're not going to have a sellout this year, although I'd love that. Um, we're starting to bring 2016 into the conversation, and, and it's been a fantastic month. You think about the Grand Prix; uh, it was our best attendance since since 2015. You look at the the first week of oval practice, and uh, we had our best attendance um, since 2016. Then you look at qualifying weekend. Since we went to that format uh, in 2011, that two day single weekend format format, we had our best attendance since then. Um, and so now we're looking at our best uh, race day attendance since uh, 2016 when we had to sell out. And then as far as carb day and snake pit, uh, we'll just have to see. But they're going to be seller crowds, amazing weather on tap. Uh, there's still tickets available for all this. And so I hope people um, continue to buy. It's, it's incredible. I mean, we're ready to host a fantastic weekend and I, i'm i'm giddy about it i cannot wait it's going to be great it, it, it was already electric out here on qualifying weekend and uh this weekend is just going to be off the charts and so i we're pumped we're excited this is why we do what we do and so to, to see people come back like this uh we're thrilled we just can't wait for it to get here Michael, I feel like 2016 is such a like huge bar to shoot for, but like you mentioned, you guys are always shooting for the moon in general when promoting and setting this event up. What is a, a success for you at the end of the day? When you look back on Monday morning and you, you see what you guys were able to achieve, what, what for you is a, a success for your year of planning for this thing? Yeah, I think some of it, Jimmy, is the numbers I just talked about, right? Because at the end of the day, you kind of get evaluated on that mm-hmm. and the numbers look great. And so now I'm already thinking ahead. Okay. What else, like you said, what else are we going to get judged upon? I think customer experience is a big one. Um, you know, we'll put out, um, during the race, we'll, we'll be monitoring social media and sort of taking stock in, uh, in terms of what people are saying about us, the questions they're asking of us, the complaints they're logging. Uh, we have a task, social media task force that responds to those in real time. 
but then also tracks the sentiment and uh, sort of the major themes. And so right away, we'll have some anecdotal data uh, in terms of how it went. Um, and then we do post-event surveys that um, our ticket buyer is really great about opening and filling out and returning um, digitally. And so um, that will be um, interesting. And, and I got to tell you, our net promoter score uh, for the Indy 500 is off the charts. And it, it's, it's their numbers that would make Mickey Mouse blush. And so uh, I'm fortunate to be able to market a strong brand like that. People love this event and they love us and they, they, they let us know that. And so that's really cool. Um, and so we'll be looking at that uh, over the next uh, seven to 14 days to make sure that um, we did, we, we performed, we did what we needed to do to provide a great expo- experience for people who came. Um, and then I think, you know, in addition to that, um, we're going to see how the renewal period goes when the checker flag falls, um, that starts our race to renew. And so there's 500 hours, roughly two weeks that people have to put in their renewal and, um, also uh, put in a request for an upgrade. And so um, after that two weeks, we typically have the venue half sold out for the next race, for the next year's race. And so with more people than can fit in, um, you know, in the stands for the Daytona 500, for example. So it's huge. That, those 500 hours are huge. And we're already up on renewals. Renewal period is technically open. If you want to renew now, you can. And we're already up over last year's renewals. And so uh, at this point in time, anyway. So, so far, so good. But we've got a race weekend to have happen. And so we need to see how it goes. First, you know, Rogers, uh, Roger Penske's main priority is that people have a great experience. That's why he keeps adding digital boards and, and making sure the restrooms are clean and, frankly, dumping $50 million into this place since he bought it because he wants people to have a good experience. If they do, chances are they'll come back. Michael Kaltmark, Senior Director of Marketing at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. It's been a big year leading to a big month and leading to a big day on Sunday. Enjoy it like you always do, and if you need a place to escape on Monday, the pool's ready, so bring the boys over. Oh, my man. Appreciate that. Yep. Hey, good thanks for the time. You guys. Yep. Go dogs. Yeah, second time. Second time. Ended with that go dogs. He's a year older than Ed and I, though, so he's the wiser of the trio. So he got Very first pick of the neon shirts then? He did. Um, my outfit was so historically bad. So I actually want to say, so he was, that was vision racing days. And Michael was doing, I mean, he was still working for Butler, but then in the month of May, he would go and help out with social media and marketing and everything for them. And so we had, at that point in time, that was like the heyday of our group. Um, it was the year before my wife and I would have our first child. And that was the year they were in the neon car. So it's like this entire group, we've got to go as neon yellow as possible. And Michael, I think, actually made neon yellow vision shirts, but I didn't know that these shirts were coming. So I got on eBay. Like This is like pre-Amazon being able to buy like everything you know. I got on eBay and got a yellow shirt, went to like CVS, like a neon yellow shirt, went to CVS and bought those pieces of printing paper that you could then iron on to your shirt sure. and like ink jetted the vision logo and the number onto that thing and plastered it on there. But so it's like a white background with that. Cause I didn't, I can't cut it out and iron it. It just doesn't really work very well. And I put so much time into making this amazing shirt and then lo and behold, like the whole everybody else, like I'm pretty sure Mike was the one that made like this bulk order of like legitimate shirts with the and everything on it. And I show up with this white patch. I had bought and I bought 
women's capri pants that were like baby blue with neon yellow piping on them. Sure. It was awesome. So you did not make the trade, though, out for one of those. Heck no. You kept the... Heck no. I had a a neon yellow headband, and I had these neon yellow... They were sunglasses, but they were... My son, actually, I think was trying to find him to take, because it's neon day, ironically, at his school today. And I still have these glasses. I put them in my kid's dress-up bin. And for the people on YouTube, you're getting this beautiful view of it. But they they weren't slots. They were literally like tiny holes poked in it so it looked like i couldn't see out of them but the holes were small on one end and big on the other so that visual i could see out of them but it looked like i was just wearing literally like neon covers over my eyes it was the the consumption at that race was epic and there there are photos of this though somewhere oh they're all over facebook i mean this is literally why i can't run for president like (laughs) that race alone might be a part of it there was um I got free tickets that year and we sat on the straight and we were kind of low down and back to the conversation of people calling in and they were terrible seats. Like if you sit really low on the front stretch, you can't see a whole lot. I'm sorry if anybody out there has low front you can see the pits. So if you really want to see the pits, I actually think it's pretty good for kids because they can kind of see that action in front of them. It's really hard to keep the track around before mm-hmm. a bunch of like 28 year olds who had been overserved for six hours and you wanted to see the actual race, like not being in three and four was a different change for that year. But there's, yeah, I mean that whole crew, I'll never forget going home that night. I mean, we couldn't be with the rest of the 40 cause we'd gotten these free tickets and you would watch the race. And every time that camera would pan around between three and four, there was just this massive humanity. It just looked like this welt of neon yellow and orange just sticking out in the middle of the, fa- it was amazing. Awesome. It was so good. So I appreciate him taking the time and letting me embarrass him on the air. He's already, he's texting me something. I'm sure he's like, never, ever, ever, ever bring up personal details again on the air. But that's what I do. Cause what are you going to do? I'm only in here for the day. Uh, more of the fan midday show coming up. It's just me, Jimmy, and you the rest of the way. So let us know what you want to talk about two three nine ten seventy. If you have any race tips, favorite seats, if you're a first timer, we'll throw it open to anybody that wants to talk about the race the rest of the show. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Who was the one that did the time? That was a, was that a Saturday Night Live sketch? Do the it wasn't a mocking. It was more just a you know how Cher sounds. That that's a actually think that is my wife's karaoke song. If that was on the test, if we were doing the newlywed game, I'm pretty sure that is her karaoke song. That's good. That's really good, Eddie. We did not plan this, but my desired karaoke song literally followed the next segment. But what I think is my go-to wife's. Eddie actually runs TikTok. You don't know that, but he's big in data mining. <laughs> I mean, the amount of conversations and ads I'm getting in my Twitter feed sometimes is freaky how that goes. Um, we're now at uh, talk whatever you want to talk about with the race, right? So let's go to the phone lines again. We have Daryl there. Hey, Daryl, what's up? Hey, how you guys doing today? Great. Good. First timer, long timer, best seat. What, which category you fall into? Well, I'm just, just calling in to give your uh, listeners uh, some information that plan on using Uber or Lyft to oh. get to the track yes. this year and to get out of the track. I, in the past, Uber and Lyft used to have a designated route to get people in and out. This year, they will not have a designated route. So if you're going to use that way of transportation, you might want to request a, li- a Lyft or an Uber early in the morning and make sure you get there early because if you don't, you're going to get stuck in traffic. Yeah. Also, also getting out of the track, there'll be one spot only where you can get a ride out and that you'll be notified when you request to drive where to go to p- get in that car. 
So there's only one location after the race where you can go get a ride out of the track. Are you a driver, Daryl? Yes, I've got over 4,000 rides. Yeah. Uh, so let me just, this is great. This is this is why. This is why I love sitting here doing this show. So I'm assuming that just based off of how you were sort of phrasing this, this is a more difficult path for you this year to get people to and from? Yes. You know, we got to take the same route as everybody else. We used to take the route that was designated for the – for the buses, hmm. but this year we we don't have that. Got it. So if you're going to use Lyft or Uber, you might want to leave early. Or if you don't, you're going to get stuck in traffic. Right. And are you are you probably going to likely just be in the queue already towards the end of the race, and then whoever kind of finds you just has to find your car and then work well, their way out of it. There's going to be a, a pickup location at the track yeah. where you have to go to get in the car. Yeah. So if you're not almost there, don't request the ride because that driver's not going to sit there for 20 minutes when there's going to be thousands of people requesting Right, the they're going to take the person that's already there. That makes a ton of sense. Yeah. Well, that, that, that is good. Daryl, thank you so much for the phone call. That was phenomenal information. I mean, look at that. Any other PSAs that are out there? I mean, this we are giving the people what they need here today to get them ready for the 107th running of the Indianapolis 500. Jimmy, you're just looking – look at the big smile on your face. I mean, this is just – Together, we are together in this indie, united, ready to roll for the 107th running of the greatest spec one. Racing. All right, what stupid stor- sports story you want to talk about now? Um, <laughs> well, I had a good one, but I was so enamored, enamored with Daryl and, 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 so and the Uber aspect of of trying to plan out the yep. ride share program uh-huh. that I partially lost it. So I'll ask you this: Will, how bummed were you the Colts didn't get any primetime games? Well, what what have they done to deserve a primetime game? Like none, actually, I can't remember. Don't who's don't take- use that one because I have plenty of other teams that like got four that you could argue maybe don't deserve. Sure, one. I can. I'll make that case. But who was? I can't remember whose take it was on this. It was that said. Well, you know what? At least we know they're on at one o'clock every week. Like I can plan my schedule accordingly. And I don't have to worry about staying. up. Remember last year? What was the the Pittsburgh game? That was a money nighter. That was a money nighter, and it was like a just an awful. And they lost that game, right? They did. Kenny Pickett came back and they beat did. him, and yep. and. I mean, I was tired the next morning, and it was like one of those. I'm not saying this is going to be a disappointing season. Like optimism, I'm glad we've talked at a nauseum about the Colts and, and we're, we're thinking, oh, Pete's sake, <laughs> over. I don't know, over. Um, to and be clear, I wasn't asking you. I was just sharing. I know. That, I know what you're sharing. I, I think it's just great to have optimism around a building of momentum, and who knows if it's actually going to work out for them. But they haven't done anything or provided a reason to put in that spot. So I'm okay with the idea of just being like, hey, it's a one o'clock team. Like in the fall, when the weather's still nice, I'll be done and be able to go outside and play a little golf after the game is over with. I'm not going to, you know, hitch my wagon to a game that is meaningless, but keeps me up until 1130 at night. Like you and I've had this conversation a lot. Like it's hard to stay, when you get old, it's hard to stay up and watch sporting events late. So yeah, good, good for the Colts. I'll be able to watch every game start to finish this coming season. Remember the Thursday nighter in Denver? What was that? Two to one was the final in that one last year. Four to four to three. Oh, uh, like the, the field goal game. Yeah, yes. five to two it, it, or whatever. It was a little, it it was a little higher than that. Thankfully, but, I was in Vegas working that week, and so I was able to stay up and watch the rest of that. Oh, I couldn't imagine. I'm thankfully, question mark. because of right, that's right because of timing. Like if I had been here, oh, could you imagine having to stay up to? Oh, many of you did. Massive regrets. And if I could buy you a, a beer at the 500 this week, I totally would. Who we got next? Let's go to Aaron. Aaron, how are you? 
Hey, good afternoon, fellas. How you doing? Hey, you know, I got a couple ideas, one for the NFL, marketing, and one for the Indy 500. NFL, they always worry about players leaving their cities, you know, for bigger money, and they can't afford them under the salary cap. Why don't they come up with a salary cap for every position? Mm. One for offensive line, one for defense, quarterback. That way they can save their players for each individual city. And as far as the Indy 500 is concerned, if you want to keep young people coming out there, a concert is going to do it by itself. How about a go-kart and a uh, skateboarding series right before the main Ooh. event? Ooh. You know, put it in the infield. You get those professional skateboarders out there, build a ramp, and here come your crowd. And if you really, really want a bigger crowd, do like F1 because right now F1, as far as a diverse crowd, they're kicking in these butts. And if you can get some women drivers out there, we got to be able to find a Lewis Hamilton for Indy 500. Mm. I mean, it's been too long. You know, we got to do better than just a pace car driver or somebody waving a flag, mm. you know, from the, Indy, uh, from the Indiana Pacers or the Colts. There's a, a Lewis Hamilton out there somewhere. You know, which is already won on the Indy 500 track for the Formula One. So, I mean, you know, just those thinking about those things, the young people will come. If you want big money, come and get that money. It's it's there. Better put uh, butts in the seats. Yeah. But if skate, the skateboarding, that will really do it. I mean, just right now. Uh, I don't disagree. Aaron, that was a fantastic phone call. I think three for three on all of the ideas. Uh, a lot to unpack there. I'm, I'm kind of intrigued by this positional, not to take away from this Indy 500-themed show, but I was really intrigued by the positional salary cap. Could you imagine if it was – I mean, what if you're a team that likes to build through the, your Chris Ballard, you like to build through the trenches, now all of a sudden you can't afford your eight defensive linemen and all of this because of cap you're forced to go spend on – gasp wide receiver or something like that that was for kevin that was not for me chris that was not for me that was a kevin bowen um request like that would be that would be a fascinating sort of push because you kind of force every team to build in a similar way and how they would construct i think would be interesting and then for the other stuff all great ideas for stuff at the track i think both of these ideas have one major sort of problem in it and that is how the sports themselves are accessed and run so financial issues in the nfl aren't from a lack of money it's from organizations that are all working together to make as much money themselves but also limit some of that and it's hasn't been collectively bargained well enough to where we have more money for players and more money for more positions and larger roster spots this is a completely different show for a completely different time and then from a racing standpoint and he's talking about trying to cultivate a pathway to have a more diverse audience that is attracted to an idea of like a lewis hamilton you look at a majority of where a lot of these race car drivers are coming from. It's no different from my sport of golf. Like access to the sport and then the cost of that sport is so it's such a massive hurdle that it really does eliminate the entry point to the sport for a heavy majority of young people. And I don't actually know. This is not the time nor the forum to litigate that conversation. I just I hear everybody out there. I understand it's a problem, but until you 
until you have communism in the sport itself, like it's not going to change. You know what I'm saying? Like means are going to always be that sort of pathway. So I would love to say there's a quick and easy solution to it. The answer is it's not. It's very, very nuanced. And it's not like that in just this sport. It's like that in a lot of other sports. I'm sorry. That's Now we're getting to the heavy hits. Like, What's your favorite seat at the track there, Jimmy, before we start talking about <laughs> socioeconomic and geopolitical issues? Yeah, I'm not going to try to sit here and pretend like I have a solution for how you would fix that with Indy 500. But in terms of capping the way teams are supposed to spend, like the idea sounds good in practice. But a lot of the confusion or head scratchingness that you see around the NFL is cheap owners being cheap owners. If you are wealthy enough to be able to own a professional franchise and you're cutting corners, you should have to sell the team. You should not be owning it. It should it is a it should be a a means by which to build your community and contend for championships. It should not be a way as a side hustle for you as a billionaire to try to generate massive profits year over year. Well, the problem is now it's so expensive to play the game to get into the game. I mean, look at the commander sale and you know what someone's suing Bank of America now for five hundred billion because they didn't get the line of credit they thought they needed to, in order to buy the franchise. I'm I'm way over paraphrasing the conversation, but or the uh, the the news story and how it all goes down, but it, now it's like it's not as if there's a million Jeff Bezos is laying around sure. who can buy a team outright in cash and then still be a billionaire with other things going on. Like you'll see guys that are cashing out as much as they can to get into this game because then it's a absolute money printing mechanism. It's the safest business that you could get into right now. Like if you are a billionaire for whatever you did, I guarantee you the industry you are coming from for the most part is not nearly as safe as one where you have 32 owners working all together and colluding to make as much money as possible together when there is no relegation, there is no penalty for being bad at that ownership sort of standpoint. So you're right. There's a there's a number of things that are working against it being a fairer, more open market system to where all of your teams are going to be able to go out and spend sort of lavishly. And again, I'm not saying that there's a simple solution to that problem. I'm just saying that's the way the structure is built sure. and that creates the inherent problem. If you can't afford to keep the team afloat and spend in the right areas don't try and weasel your way into a 6.05 billion dollar bid to get in the first place just don't do it you're doing yourself a disservice and you're a disservice to whatever community that you are usurping even though dan snyder is scum and i'm not mad that he's going to be out of the nfl here and whatever that but it was, goes to paper but so many great people could have bought into that by the time it's you, you water it down with 55 different bidders in one particular bid, it's very difficult now to have a singular human who could be really good at that job sure. have sole ownership of a franchise. The, the That's values, why you see conglomerates so often. The values now, right? have escalated I mean, so yeah. much that guys that bought, I mean, what the Ursay family paid for the, for what was the Rams and flipped them for the Colts, right? I mean, what they paid by inflation standards to what the Ursa family now galaxies. it's unbelievable yeah. how that has well that escalated really quickly we'll wrap the show up next whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits long live listening to your favorites learn more about Kaskali ribocyclob 200 milligrams at kisqali.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you uh, sad news today, just came across Tina Turner passing away at the age of 83, died at her home in Switzerland today following a long illness. Queen of rock and roll, if you haven't seen, I, I just watched for the second time the the documentary on her, I think it's on HBO, so you can probably have it on, find it on HBO Max. I mean, just, man, she crushed it for 
50 years in the business, went through obviously a lot of awful things and um, came overcame them and became such a voice of strength. And I mean, that voice was strong, unbelievable. So our respects to Tina Turner, who passes away at the age of 83. This is uh, typically the segment where we talk about our picks for the week. We only have a couple of minutes for that. Uh, I did want to say that the NCAA did a sports gambling landscape survey shockingly they found out that betting is prevalent among young adults what wow what a can you read that one more what time? a shocking you say young adults survey results wednesday that indicate betting is prevalent among young adults especially on college campuses and within minority communities know, it says in here do you have well. any idea how dangerous it would have been for a 20 21 19 year old jay cook to be able to place wagers with the amount of sports and late nights spent around it. Oh my goodness. Well, apparently that's not, what's happening. Not have been great. It's a problem. One eight hundred nine with it. It's Eddie, a problem. What's the other one eight hundred game. Thank you. It's a problem. But let's make some picks. <laughs> the Jay Cook plays of the day. This is me. All right. I'm not a f- athlete. This is my f- way. This is how I win. That's two days in a row now <laughs> that we've had awkward segues to that. The day before that wasn't awkward. That was comedically it, it, brilliant. Okay, let me let me rephrase. The this two days in a row we've had comedic brilliance because the day before that it was oh man the NFL they're potentially have a second wave of gambling violations. But hey, here's some bets for you on a Wednesday. We're gonna take the Atlanta Braves on the money line over the Los Angeles Dodgers, laying one and a half on the Seattle Mariners for the run line as they host the Oakland Athletics. Nasty Nestor on the mound for the New York Yankees will take them on the money line over the Baltimore Orioles and a close things out shout out to brendan king one of our very own florida panthers go to the stanley cup finals tonight give me them on the money line to make a clean sweep sweeps are hard in hockey which is why i'm going the other way i'm taking the carolina hurricanes tonight all right i'll take the hurricanes i like them tonight they'll avoid the sweep i i I would think they would get one barkoff is in for the panthers which is big he's their best player don't let them get one mind the out time here boys mind the out time don't let them get one don't let them get one. That's got to be your mindset. Is that your only bet? Yeah, I have to mind the out time here. Average winning starting position of the last six Indy 500 champions is fourth. We've had six straight winners inside the top eight. Starting fourth this year, Santino Ferrucci. There's my pick right there. Lock it in. 15 to 1 odds. Lock it in at the end of the show. Guys, this was so much fun today. To everybody that called in with your Indy 500 stories, that was special. That was so happy. I didn't even wave the flags today to all you on YouTube. Thank you. Thank you to Kyle Kirkwood, Ed Carpenter, Jake Query, Michael Kaltmark for joining. Thanks to you guys. I'm Will Haskett. Talk to you next time.